My fellow Westorians, I'm Aziz again. With me is Ashea again. And this is Valar Reredus. As we take on A Feast for Crows, Valar Reredus seeks to entertain while preparing you for the journey of the Winds of Winter. Many of the new plot lines and locations launched in this book are still unresolved, which takes us to our greatest heights of mystery yet. For the remainder of the Valar Reredus journey, we'll be looking ahead as much, if not more, than we've been looking back. But the core message remains true. The best books are those that hold up to repeated rereading. From George Armour. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. If you're watching live, feel free to ask live questions and comments, chat with the other live viewers. You can also send questions and comments ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media platforms, Facebook, Flick, Discord, or Slack. Also, please check out our contributors' websites and podcasts. That includes Joe Buckley's show, The Isle of Faces. He calls it the Scraps and Scrolls editions when he pairs up with Valar Reredus. Every episode over there is in tandem with the episodes over here. And check out Nina Friel on Tumblr. Her blog is Good Queen Alley with one L. And that's tumblr.com. And a lot of the topics that we discuss here are expanded on on her blog. And her thoughts are here in the episode as well. You can join us on Patreon to support us financially. You can also get access to things like scripts and some bonus episodes that are only available through Patreon. And we have another way to support. If you're not big on Patreon, you can join us as an anchor supporter. It's a lot simpler, bare bones, just a monthly amount and little else to do than that. Just fire and forget. You can, you can find the links to those in the descriptions of the video and podcast. Today, we have some excellent chapters. The much-esteemed Cat of the Canals chapter, a.k.a. Stark Justice in Bravos, a.k.a. the Milk of Human Blindness. Sam 4, a drink with dragons, a.k.a. the one with the fat pink mast. Cersei 8, Dragonstone has fallen, a.k.a. the Tower of Frog. And finally, Brienne 7, Devils at the Crossroads, a.k.a. the one with no chance, no choice. The clock is turning backwards in this one. The cat of the canal sees Arya return to make a major decision, despite the kindly man saying, I thought that girl had left Bravos, while the waif gives her origin story, in part at least. Maester Aemon wishes he could turn back the clock, as prophetic and supernatural events he's been studying all his life are actually coming to pass just as he is as well. And he begins his last fading. It's only natural that he thinks of his own past, including the dreams of his long-dead brother and other brothers. The Ironborn are turning back the clock to the days when the West Coast was their playground, including rivers like the Mander itself. 
a major issue in Cersei's chapter, and the reason Loras was willing to assault Dragonstone so quickly. Meanwhile, Cersei thinks herself through the final and complete details of her encounter with Maggie the Frog, while George turns back the clock by writing that scene in the style of Ned Stark at the Tower of Joy, hence the name Tower of Frog. He does the same for us in Brienne's chapter, though via location rather than style. The inn at the crossroads once again features a climactic moment, and not for the first time, a desperate bloody fight where even the winner is severely wounded, and the loser wears the same helm worn by the last man we saw fight and nearly die at this very same inn. Though he won. As he dies, Brienne reminds him of their past encounter, or reminds her of their past encounter, when Rorge was in the Brave Companions, by saying, Sapphires. She had recalled the lessons of Sir Goodwin well during the fight, and just before it, she thinks she's seen Renly for a moment too, when seeing Gendry for the first time, and asking him about his own past. It's almost funny then that another theme of these chapters is that a lot of time seems to have passed, weeks, if not months. The Brienne chapter has the rest of the Quiet Isle time, a trip to see the devastation of salt pans, and a ride to the inn at the crossroads, all in the recent past. In Cersei's last chapter, Loras asked to go to Dragonstone, <clears throat> and here we see that the ship that took him is already back, and the fight is done. Sam's chapter sees them pass a lot of time at sea, including at least one stopover in Pentos. We also have a theme of male perception of women as weak, subverted into an advantage, and female sexuality as power. The bloody mummers stand back to watch Rorge fight Brienne, treating it as a spectacle rather than a serious fight when they likely would have joined in if she were a male warrior. In Cersei's chapter, though for once Tana is not around, subverting her, well, she is a little. She plans to use her wiles on a kettle black to get him to do her bidding. Sam is given a major lesson on what sexuality looks like outside the Seven and outside the Wall. The Summer Isles esteem sex. Their religion encourages it, the opposite of the Seven. And in Bravos, we learn that courtesans are among the highest of high society with a distinct lack of stigma on their profession at all levels. A long-running theme peaks in the most tragic way today, interrupted lore. We've seen it many times in the books. It's a device George goes back to from time to time. It's an explanation on something of interest, often magical, not always, but often magical, that gets stopped midstream, like literally mid-sentence. It's, it's interrupted very often. Maester Raymond's knowledge of prophecy and dragons is vital, but before he can explain what he knows, before he can help Daenerys half a world away, or even Sam right there next to him, he begins to lose his faculties in his life. He is the interrupted lore. Brienne will be in, a, in the midst of an important conversation about Gendry's father, Robert Brathian, but before she can explain to him who he is, Rorge and Biter and company show up, and, well, it turns to swords instead of explanations of family history. Meanwhile, Arya is hearing the waif tell her origin story and has perhaps lied about a detail. By itself, that's enough to change the story quite a lot, right? One lie can turn the whole thing around. But then the wave says, I was lying about lying, but Arya isn't sure about that. They've played the lying game together quite a lot. But before they can get any farther, the kindly man shows up, interrupting the whole thing. And I'll interrupt this to actually start the chapter itself. Let's go to Cats of the Canals. Stark Justice in Bravos, aka the Milk of Human Blindness. Milk of Human Kindness is Shakespeare, so I thought that fit pretty well. To keep with our earlier sense of comparison, we've moved on to the full immersion phase, hence title-hopping Arya finally having the name of her chapter changed, right? She gets into the game. She's well into her mission with Briscoe. She's incredibly well-versed in the city. She's collecting tons of info for the kindly man. Seems like months have passed. In fact, we know it's months because she works with Briscoe 
except when the moon is black. That's when she returns to the House of Black and White for a few days, then back to Briscoe. This cycle seems to have repeated at least a few times, and since it's a month-long cycle, well, there we go. It's been a while since we've had a single chapter process that amount of time. That was usually reserved for Daenerys back in the day, as Joe notes. It's also a chapter where one can really be sure there are things we aren't catching the significance of yet, right? There's just so much happening in this chapter. I feel like later we're going to look back and go, oh yeah, that mattered. True for a lot of chapters, but perhaps more so here. It starts like this. She woke before the sun came up in the little room beneath the eaves that she shared with Brusco's daughters. She fits in so very nicely. It's peaceful, a lot of work, but she enjoys it. As usual, she's great at adapting, but this is less forced because she likes it. However, even as she's relatively safe and adjusted as cat of the canal, she very often slips into her old self, culminating with the Darien murder. Nina says, just as Elaine one reminded readers right away that this was still Sansa, despite the name, with all her but her explicitly saying winter is coming and embracing cold. She's acting so much like Sansa. Cat of the Canals, very similar. Not only warging into Nymeria, of course, but haunted by the memory of the Red Wedding, of being unable to save her mother. This isn't Cat of the Canals' mother. This is Arya Stark's mother she's thinking of. And there's an immediate contrast as well with the temperature. Arya, who's up first, despite the warm and snug place under the blankets with Briscoe's daughter, and Talia, who was always complaining she was cold, and dresses under blankets. And Brea, who has to be quite literally dragged out of bed, feels like a reminder of sense, like a true Stark, embracing the cold of coming winter. In the eerie, Arya, just as much a true Stark, doesn't seem to mind how cold Rogosi mornings are. So Sansa, adjusting very nicely to the cold of the eerie because she's used to it. Same thing going on with Arya here in the cold of Bravos. She's a bit like the people in this quote. They bought clams and cockles from her, told her true tales of bravos and lies about their lives, and laughed at the way she talked when she tried to speak bravosi. Yeah, they're proud of their city. So when she walks around selling her stuff, she gets has lots of conversations. And this is one of the things that's very clear to her. It's a powerful and majestic and vibrant enough city that no one really needs to exaggerate to impress people about it. You can just say the truth, and that's impressive. That's a bit of luck being born in such a place. Most anyone would be proud to have come from Bravos. At least if you're born there, you would have a different attitude maybe than being born somewhere else. But people, you know, we're fallible. We aren't the city we come from, but we might want to live up to it or at least feel good about ourselves. Hence, truth about Bravos lies about themselves. By appearance, she can pass for Bravosi to most, it seems, but clearly not if she has to talk. Definitely a little interesting that despite all her extreme talents, she's not getting the language after a few months. She's not bad at it, but she's not good at it either. It might be that George decided for some story purpose that she's not great with languages. I'm not sure what, but it's very notable because she's so good at so many things. This almost stands out because she's rarely not good at stuff. However, it's explicit that she's making acquaintances with lots of people, and that's part of why she's enjoying herself so much. It's a low-stress job. Some sales jobs are hard because you have to convince people to buy something they don't need. But Cat of the Canals has fresh-caught seafood in a city where almost literally everyone eats seafood. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty easy. This stuff sells itself. All men must die, sure. All men must serve, well, in a manner of speaking. But all men definitely must eat and drink, right? Quote. Oysters, clams, and cockles were Cat's magic words. And like all good magic words... They could take her almost anywhere. She had boarded ships from Lease and Old Town and the port of Ibn and sold her oysters right on deck. 
Someday she rolled her barrow past the towers of the mighty to offer baked clams to the guardsmen at their gates. Once she cried her catch on the steps of the Palace of Truth. And when another peddler tried to run her off, she turned his cart over and sent his oysters skittering across the cobbles. Hmm. That mundane but inescapable factor of life gives quite a bit of power to the service industry, particularly if, say, you're good with poisons, which Arya just so happens to get a lesson on in this chapter from the waif, a true expert. Again, everyone eats and drinks. Hmm. So it's extremely relevant that Arya is going wherever she wants to go, I'd say. Besides the food, nothing is as unthreatening as a harmless-looking little girl, right? Well, we know better, but most others do not, even Bravosi, who have heard of the faceless men. We've seen Arya turn that to her advantage before ever learning a thing at the House of Black and White, but now she's acquiring the skills to put that to even greater effect. In Westeros, there are servants everywhere. Shay was hidden in plain sight, and while she was great at identifying Varys in his disguise, she wasn't practiced at disguise herself. The proliferation of largely ignored slaves and servants with access to the mighty is something the faceless men can really make use of. And no one they've ever dealt with before is as powerful as Valyria. In other words, the enemy they fought during their origin, they've never had to fight anything nearly as deadly. It's all been not easy, but easier since then. But second of all, this is a tour of the city. She goes almost everywhere. She reports on things she's learned. Yet, not once is the Iron Bank mentioned. In fact, not once ever in Arya's chapters do they come up directly. Sure, she has no reason to think much about them. What does she care about banking? But in all these wanderings and comings and goings, not a single mention? This includes the Mercy chapter, by the way. This is a notable omission and might be George keeping readers off the scent a bit. This is as close as we get. She sold to swaggering bravos and striped satin and to key holders and justiciars and drab coats of brown and gray. Yeah, that's it. That's the clue. Key holders are officials of the Iron Bank, but this is not explained anywhere in the Song of Ice and Fire proper, only in the World of Ice and Fire in the section on bravos. You could also infer it from Fire and Blood. We see them count five of them in the Mercy chapter in the audience. So if you know who the key holders are, then you do see a little bit of Iron Bank evidence here. And of course, one of the one of the ones we see in the Mercy chapter is Big Like Illyrio needs three seats. Supposedly his whole family is too, another sign of corruption, I suppose. So even a rereader doesn't necessarily know what a key holder is and that it's associated with the Iron Bank unless they reread after reading, reading The World of Ice and Fire or, of course, listening to this podcast. So we've seen a lot of almost maybe countless examples of parallel storytelling. It's a device George loves to use, right? We've seen it a lot. The Iron Bank is relevant in Cersei's plotline. It's going to be coming to John and Stannis' as well. Probably others eventually, but for now, it's at least in those. So what George often does is he'll bring up information about something relevant to a subplot in a chapter that isn't where the main focus of that subplot is. For example, we get information on the Ironborn in Brienne's chapters. We get information on different races and cultures in chapters that have nothing to do with those races and cultures. Like, for example, we at one point have the Ironborn talking about the Dothraki, right? So these things are... George loves this device. Yet, he did, doesn't use it here. He doesn't have Arya, who lives in Bravos, talk or think or interact with the Iron Bank, except in this extremely subtle mention. And even then, it's just, well, they bought some clams from her. So the fandom has been wondering about this connection between the Iron Bank and the Faceless Men for a long time. We've obviously been 
pretty on top of it, even during Valerie Redis, trying to bring it up as much as possible. So it's not as, as if we're not on the scent already, but that doesn't mean George didn't have different plans back when he wrote this book. He didn't necessarily know people would get on the scent of it. But given our and even Arya's question regarding where the money is coming from or going, meaning all the faceless men taking so much cash, where does it all go? Again, this might speak to what's happening with the Iron Bank and that connection. So here's a relevant passage. Here is the world of ice and fire bit that explains it. And it's from an Archmaester Mathar. The bank is famous for its discretion and its secrecy. Mathar recounts that the founders of the Iron Bank numbered three and 20, 16 men and seven women, each of whom possessed a key to the bank's great subterranean vaults. Their descendants, whose numbers now exceed 1,000, are known as key holders to this day, though the keys they display proudly on formal occasions are now entirely ceremonial. Certain of the founding families of Bravos have declined over the centuries and a few have lost their wealth entirely, yet even the meanest still cling to their keys and the honors that go with them. The Iron Bank is not ruled by the keyholders alone, however. Some of the wealthiest and most powerful families in Bravos today are of more recent vintage, yet the heads of these houses own shares in the bank, sit on its secret councils, and have a voice in selecting the men who lead it. In Bravos, as many an outsider has observed, Golden coins count for more than iron keys. Ah, that last line is really telling, isn't it? Golden coins count for more than iron keys, but it wasn't always so. Iron keys counted for more back in the day when Bravos was new. And that's part of that encroaching theme of corruption in Bravos that we've been discussing. One that we suspect may include the faithless men as well. Originally, the keys were, well, used to open doors deep down in an old iron mine, hence the name Iron Bank, because that's the founding of the Iron Bank. And it was just a way to keep it away from like pirates and raiders, because, you know, if pirates come from the sea and try to take some stuff from your town, well, it, they're not as likely to get down into your vaults if you've got stuff stored down there. And of course, there's other reasons to keep it down there from other thieves and things like that. So vaults and tunnels and, well, there's tunnels below the house of black and white as well. So well, maybe these tunnels connect or... Yeah. And then again, it puts us in a mine in Valyria where all the tunnels were used to uh, send the slaves down and, and bring back lots of gold and silver at, at cost to themselves. We've also considered quite a lot how Arya might interact with the tunnels below the Red Keep if she goes back there. If she does, she might be able to use cats to help her find her way. It was a particular cat with a torn ear who led her to the tunnels in the first place, that black cat that we call Valerian because it was probably Rhaenys' king. Now she has a whole troop of cats following her around. Quote, Some days she would have a dozen trailing after her before the sun went down. From time to time, the girl would throw an oyster at them and watch to see who came away with it. The biggest toms would seldom win, she noticed. Oft as not, the prize went to some smaller, quicker animal, thin and mean and hungry. Like me, she told herself. Her favorite was a scrawny old tom with a chewed ear, who reminded her of a cat she'd once chased all around the Red Keep. No, that was some other girl, not me. Yeah, so again, just almost in half these examples, even when we're not talking about this particular theme, Arya just keeps thinking of Arya and not Cat of the Canals. Subconsciously, it just pops up. And she's like, oh, wait, that's not me. So she just she's just not changing. Arya is, if nothing else, stubborn and very much herself, even though she's great at adapting and pretending to be someone else. Internally, she's just always Arya. 
Of course, she's later going to actually skin change into a cat while blind. So this is certainly escalating too. Once she knows she can do it, I'm going to guess that she does it more often. Right now, she's still kind of figuring it all out. She's still figuring out the wolf dream side too. And well, there's more evidence of that side of her skin changing awakening as well. Some nights, the wolf dreams were so vivid that she could hear her brothers howling even as she woke. And once, Brea had claimed that she was growling in her sleep as she thrashed beneath the covers. Another powerful reminder of who she really is and that there's really no escaping it. Even at rest, she's a wolf of House Stark. And she's connected to Nymeria, who leads a rather active life back there in the Riverlands, putting it mildly. Despite the wolf dreams, it's fitting that a chapter that is you know, kind of relaxed by comparison to so many others, especially compared to hers, where she's you know, not running around for her love, uh, scared for her life. So it's fitting that this chapter has a murder, just kind of yada, 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 just slide right by. We don't even see it happen. It just the boots tell us afterwards that Darian is dead and that she did it. She straight up says, yeah, Arya Stark did that. <laughs> but I referred to Stark Justice in our homemade title, but Arya... That's certainly not the whole story in her case. One can look at it at it that way, but I don't think that tells everything. I think that's missing a few details. Obviously, deserting from the watch is a pretty big deal, but I think it's more personal than that. This is not her father doing a duty, though that element, again, it is present. She hates Darian, it seems. She hates that he broke his oath. She hates that it's her brother, the Lord Commander, that he's disobeying, although actually it's not clear that she knows he's Lord Commander yet even though the, the phrase Lord Snow is said, it doesn't, it's not clear that she knows that's him. Still, she knows he's on the wall, so it's still one of his brothers, so to speak, either way. She also maybe hates that he's so handsome and popular and free, and that it, he was locked into this lifestyle that he was able to walk away from, and that's a big deal, that she can't do that. On top of that, she's just learned on the same day that her Aunt Lysa was murdered by a singer. It's another, one of the many things that she just pushes aside saying, oh, that's something that Arya cares about, not Cat of the Canals. But again, she flat out tells the kindly man that Arya Stark killed Darian. She doesn't mince, doesn't try to conceal it. But she's known Darian for a while now. As we said, months have gone by. She's encountered him, not maybe not regularly, but she's observant and has seen him several times. But of all the days, this is the one she kills him. She grew up in a household where the importance of the Night's Watch and its vows was hammered in from a young age. She comes from a house where her father taught the importance of vows too, but also of it being their ancient duty to deal with people who break these vows. Arya wasn't invited along to watch at the beginning for that justice when those Night's Watch brothers were, or one Night's Watch brother was executed. Still, it's still part of her family and her family's history. So they're very much intertwined. And of course, Still, I don't think Eddard would uh, approve of, of this, nor John, very likely. But, you know, she's 10 years old and doing what she thinks is right, but also doing what she feels like. But also, it's a lot deeper than that. It isn't just Night's Watch and her family and thinking about John and her father. Arya happens to met to have met the last Night's Watch recruiter too, Yorin, right? She spent a lot of time with Yorin, and now here she is meeting Darian, who is really, really, well, he's just no Yorin. And note as well that Rorge and Biter, who were in Yorin's charge, right? They're going to die a few chapters from now, and Gendry will be there too. All the gang back together again. Though in a case, that's kind of difficulty Yorin put up with for his job. 30 years of recruiting 
and he lost a couple of people in all that time. And he had to deal with people like Rorge and Biter. And Darian's like, eh. Now, I kind of understand why Darian doesn't want to be in Night's Watch. I mean, I do, do understand. I do have some sympathy for that. But he's also just so awful about it. He's just not a good person. Yorin was ugly and smelly per Arya, but he was trustworthy and tough. Darian, neither. This isn't necessarily a good justification for killing someone, but from Arya's point of view, we're just trying to unpack all the things that lead her to this. Now, in terms of Yorin and Darian, they're both small folk, not only members of Night's Watch, but specifically commissioned to be recruiters. Yet they're just so very different. Despite threats from both Gold Cloaks and Armory Lorch, Yorin didn't back down. Like he went to, he died rather than not doing his job. And here Darian, well, <laughs> three months of, <laughs> he just, eh, I don't want to do this. This is too hard. So this is a big reason why, if you really want to understand what Ari is thinking, this is probably about as close as we can get to it. Seeing, understanding from her own experiences, just how different these two people look and how Darian just super does not measure up to Yorin, even though Yorin was, was portrayed as kind of gross. But as far as personality, dependability, all those things, he was top-notch. So the scene with the waif and learning about poisons is surely worth some discussion. We get the reveal of basilisk blood here, which we saw Jockin use on Weiss's dog back in Harrenhal, and she asks about that and bites her lip when she's thinking about it and gets smacked for it, because again, she's being Arya. And I suspect we'll see Basilisk blood used again at some point. Maybe imagine it in a water supply or otherwise fed to a bunch of people or animals all at once. I mean, imagine just putting it into the wine at a feast and a whole bunch of people get it. I don't know. I would be, that'd be wild. The Tears of Lease come up as well. That which killed John Aaron in particular. It was also the choice of Andrew Farman, who murdered his wife's friends, and probably the choice of Unwin Peak, who likely tried to murder Princess Daenerys so he could have his own daughter marry King Aegon in her stead. Aegon III, that is. It's tasteless and colorless and kills as a sickness of the belly. Basically, anytime you see someone die of a bad belly or something similar in A Song of Ice and Fire or A Song of Ice and Fire history, and there are quite a few, consider the tears of links. Now, don't get caught up in seeing conspiracy theories everywhere. Not everyone who dies of a, of a stomach ailment is going to have been killed by the tears of lease. The stuff's hard to get a hold of. And it's not suspicious to die of digestive issues in this world. Still, be aware of the possibility. Then we get Sweet Sleep. It's extremely relevant because it's about to come up in a lane too. Not today, but next week as a, a way to sedate Sweet Robin. The Waif says, quote, Three pinches will produce that sleep that does not end. The taste is very sweet, so it is best used in cakes and pies and honeyed wines. Nina doesn't think it's coincidental that the Waif teaches her about it right before the mentions of the Tears of Lease, the very poison Littlefinger used to help murder John Aaron. So... We've already got one poison that killed an Aaron, and now we've got sweet sleep that's probably going to kill that Aaron's son. Yeah. Rough life if you're an Aaron. She's becoming quite good with various blades as well, but these lessons will certainly come back to matter. Yeah, who's she going to poison? Is she going to be the one to use basilisk blood, or is that going to be somebody else? Obviously, she kills that insurance dude using a poison gold coin, though I kind of doubt that's what this is setting up. Because that seems like just a part of her journey rather than a climactic moment. And that, quite frankly, is probably a different poison. Same as the one that afflicts the waif herself. Those don't really meet the description of sweet sleep or tears of lease as the way they killed. As After all, the, the coin, whatever poison was on it, well, the sweet sleep has little drops of granules and it has a flavor to it. 
and it's supposed to be added to one. I guess it could be the tears of release, but I, I don't really don't think so. So there's a lot of poisons. Ari has lots of options for them. And I, of course, she's not going to use all the ones described in this chapter. That seems like a, a bit much, but they'll come up elsewhere, um, even if not in hers. So anyway, the wave's origin story. That's the next bit I want to talk about. I really wonder about that. There's some... I have some open questions here, and I don't want to get too far into it because we know one of these things, maybe, so maybe we don't know. We think quite likely one of these things is a lie. And without knowing which of them is a lie, well, we we can't go forward <laughs> because these are all crucial details. Any one of these things turning out to be a lie, well, changes the whole story. Did her father defeat the purpose by pledging her is one of the questions I have. In other words, the father gave her daughter, gave his daughter to the house of black and white after the stepmother tried to kill the daughter. So it's almost like in order to protect her, he pledged her life to this temple. That seems a little strange to me because she was given away. It's not, that's not necessarily protective. Now I can see the argument that pledging her to this temple, she'll be safe there. And well, maybe she, because of the poisoning, she's not as capable as she was. I don't know about that argument, though. I mean, we've seen frail people rule a household before. Like, look at Walter Frey. Look at Eric Ironmaker. The guy can't even stand. So it doesn't seem like you have to have all your faculties. As long as your brain works, you can rule a household. I mean, you got that's what servants are for, right? So I don't know what's going on with this story because there's so many different possibilities for what the single lie could be. And of course, she says none of it was a lie. I'm lying about the lie. So maybe it is all true. However, it stands in interesting contrast to the things we've been talking about with regards to the difference between servitude and slavery and where that line really is. Now, again, I don't consider this slavery, but I do consider it fairly close, especially in her case, because she doesn't seem to have had any choice in it. Now, for all we know, the wife is allowed to leave. They're like, yeah, you can go because, well, I don't know why, but for all we know, that is the case. However, it doesn't sound like that's the way they operate. It sounds like you have to pledge your literally everything, your identity, your life, your thoughts. Now, hmm. like I said, this was interrupted. This conversation was interrupted by the kindly man, which is another reason I feel like it was some, somewhat important because it falls into that interruption of lore pattern. And if it's just a regular interruption of some generic conversation, well, eh, maybe that's the case, but mm, I feel like there's something more going on there. So it interrupts the discussion of her origin story and then kindly men asked for her three things bit, which is neat because we just she just learned about three specific poisons. I wonder if they look for patterns in what she reports to them. In other words, what are the faceless men getting from her reports? Joe suspects they're getting a lot from her. Doesn't seem like there's a lot of kids doing similar things out there for them. Though if it was, there would lend credence to the idea of, of maybe say Varus having it involved in, or at least this being a parallel situation. Because Ari is kind of like a little bird at the moment. Maybe she's not sneaking in between walls and, and spying on people directly. But it's, it feels similar-ish. Nina says it teaches Ari not just to learn, but what, how to learn. Ari can show up with almost literally any three pieces of knowledge as her three things, no matter how seemingly insignificant they are. But it teaches her to see all knowledge as potentially useful. Never discard something because it doesn't seem useful now, because it might seem useful later. So it's, it's really teaching her to be thorough and to not uh, overlook things, to not be uncareful. All these sources of knowledge, too. It also teaches her not to 
overlook, you know, the poor and people who don't seem powerful, that doesn't mean they don't have important information. Uh, for example, in the Cersei's chapter, Tane is going to suggest she and Cersei dress up like commoners to go listen to what the different patrons at the bars are saying about the taking of Dragonstone. It does matter to get the to get the common people's attitude towards big powerful events. And that's just one example. There's other reasons too. Nina says the faceless men are the best assassins in the world in part because they can kill without a trace, even making it look accidental. And in order to do that, they need to get information on exactly what fault lines are in a target that can be exploited, even down to these smallest, smallest details. Information gathering on both targets and methods to help with assassination is an essential skill for any faceless man. And we're going to see more of that when she kills the elderly man and the ugly little girl. She uses very, very minute details about his life to set up his death. By the same token, it also reinforces to Ari to not rely on what she doesn't know is true. She can tell the kindly man almost anything just as long as she knows it to be true rather than a rumor or a guess or an opinion. She can't afford to work on assumptions as a highly skilled person doing dangerous jobs. She has to operate on solid truth. And that really, especially at her age, learning the difference between truth and assumption, that might seem like a pretty distinct difference. But at, when you're young, maybe not. And in that world where you know, there's a lot less ed- education and learning and writing and literature are so much different and lacking, well... People operate a lot more in assumptions and rumor when it's, you know, they don't have standards of proof and standards of evidence are a lot lower in this world. Let's put it that way. So it's interesting that Arya just flat out admits to killing Gary. I don't know that they would have found out otherwise. I'm guessing they might not have. I don't know that they knew about Needle. And how would they have found out about this if she didn't tell? Maybe she just knew they'd tell, so she figured just admit it. But I don't think they care about Darian. I mean, they can't follow her around all day. That doesn't make any sense. So not only she, does she tell them, though, she tells them. It's, it's almost like she's eager to tell them. It's like she's curious to see their reaction. Like she's testing the boundaries and seeing how they're going to punish her. She considers what to tell the kindly man for her first two things, right? She's like, well, I'm going to tell him this. But when it comes to the third thing, she's just like, Arya of how Stark killed Darian. She does no mincing. She's ready to go. Joe points out, by the way, that Arya, the word Arya appears like 13 times in this chapter. And some of those times are talking about herself out loud with the kindly man or the waif saying Arya does that. But the other seven of those 13 are internal, referring to herself as Arya. And they're all in the second half of the chapter. So this is a pretty good catch. It's, it's basically after she kills Gary that she's, it's like a trigger almost, like a, like a backsliding. Uh, she was so, somewhat getting into her Cat of the Canal's identity, even though there's still plenty of Arya there. This is like, she was like 80% Cat of the Canal's and now she's back to only 40% Cat of the Canal's because this thing with Darian really like undid some of her progress. Now, of course, I don't ever think she would have made 100% progress there, but still, I think it's important. Also, it may have been the Lysa news that was part of the trigger there, hearing that her aunt died. Anyway, if that's the case, surely there's going to be more Westerosi news triggers coming because, well, they're just surely that's going to happen. There's going to be more news from Westeros. Big things are happening over there. And Bravo's being a port gets lots of that news. And uh, so she's sure to hear of it. 
So after months of working to be cat of the canals, of Arya being concealed enough that even the kindly man hadn't noticed the return of her true persona, the waif had because of the lip chewing. It's almost as if the blood of Darian has resurrected Arya. But that's taking the symbolism pretty, pretty, pretty far. So her punishment is the milk of blindness, human blindness. She notices it has a burnt taste, which is yet again more poison talk. Um, also, it seems to have an antidote. This is quite a substance. It can take someone's sight away for a long time and then just give them the right antidote and it comes back. They later tell her blindness is part of her training, but she's getting extra blindness because of Darian. As in, it was part of her training, but this is also part of her punishment. So I've suggested this before. Maybe that's going to matter. Maybe extra blindness training will make her more skilled with her other senses and in fighting in darkness. And of course, we've talked about where that might play out in different tunnels, like under the Red Keep or, heck, under the tunnels of the House of Black and White, even. Interesting, too, that she's becoming blind just as our major blind character, Eamon, dies, right? He dies in the next chapter, or he dies in between the chapters. It's all in retrospect in Sam's chapter. So, so much about Arya's arc is about true seeing, the kind that Sirio told her about, about not being fooled, not uh, allowing yourself to see what's not there. And it seems like she's quite good at it. We also wonder, is, is she going to detect things like glamours? Other people are going to fall for that, but Arya is going to be good at seeing through that. Which I really wonder about if she ever comes across Jockin again, or Melisandre, or Mance in his rattleshirt disguise. I mean, I figure that'll probably be resolved by the time she gets up there, but maybe not. Melisandre, though, she's got a glamour, and it's a good one, apparently. Uh, but I really wonder, maybe if anyone can see through it, Arya is a candidate. You really get the sense that George has fun writing Bravos, don't, don't you? He, the feel of the place, he just expands on it. He's, he himself has said he'd love to write a detective-style novel in Bravos. And it would be interesting to see what era he would write that in. It doesn't have to be, say, this current time. It could be hundreds of years ago. It could be early Bravo. I mean, Bravo doesn't have a super long history, but still, he's got 500-some years or so to pick from. Nina noticed the same thing. A lot of y'all really did, noticing how much he loves doing this world building and writing about Bravos. And... I, I want to mention that um, in that Maps, The Lands of Ice and Fire um, booklet that you can get, they have a whole map of Bravos. Yeah, The true. city of Bravos. Um, so we really do have a lot of detail on it and uh, highly recommend it. Great point. Yeah, because the only other cities we have those full maps on are like uh, King's, King's Landing. Landing. And that's, that's it, it, right? That's the only other official city map we have. Yes, yeah, so that really tells you something, problems. doesn't it? <laughs> I'd like to hope we'll get an Old Town one, maybe. <laughs> Ooh, please, please, yes. So, Brusco's connection to the Faceless Men, this is something I really wonder about. He's obviously aware of what's going on to some degree. He's, when she says, it's the moon is black, and he's like, best you go pray then, meaning go back to the house of black and white. And he says, Valo do Harris, in response. Of course, it's curious that he says good boots are hard to find, and then the kindly man does too. Now, I don't think they're the same person. Not, not at all. That's just... Hmm. But I don't know what, necessarily what to make of that, <laughs> of that line. It is interesting, though, that Arya saves the one part of, of Darian that was still Night's Watch. Those were his Night's Watch boots. But the rest of him had changed. He had gotten rid of all his other black clothing and was wearing you know, fancy clothes and furs and things like that. The whole thing it seems very mafioso to me still. I know I mentioned this already, but extreme secrecy... I quote, Bravos was a city made for secrets, a city of fogs and masks and whispers. 
ritual inductions, uh, ritual organizations, extreme violence, a deep connection to the local populace, including the common folk, right down to the Italian-sounding names, right? Uh, and the canals make us think of Venice, which was seemingly founded by refugees, not slaves, but still similar. George borrowed a little bit from the origin there. There was a variety of nations fleeing from certain barbarian invasions. And of course, like a lot of Italian cities, there's a mafia presence. It's not Southern Italy. So, and that's where the mafia is, is at its strongest, but still there is the, there is a Venetian mafia, the Veneta there, the, uh, Oh, I wrote the name down. Now I've forgotten it. Anyway. Um, that might be something for y'all to look into. Maybe there's deeper connections, deeper details there that, that we could find matches for. Nina says the pseudo apprenticeship with Brusco is a really good, is really good training for the faceless men for a number of reasons. For one thing, there's the language. She gets out there learning to talk and not just bravosi, which she's not great at, as we said, but also the trade tongue. That's just obviously for subterfuge and going places and not being seen and being able to fit in in a variety of places. That, that kind of speaks for itself, <laughs> pun intended. And also it keeps her on a schedule, keeps her regimented. Patience is really important for being an assassin. You can't just rush into it. You have to wait for your opportunity and your opportunity might take a long time. And because they're trying to be as subtle as possible to not let anyone know it happened, to make it not look like an assassination. And in order to do that, you can't force it. You got to wait for the right moment. So that obviously requires extreme patience. You're knowing you're going to kill somebody, <laughs> but you have to be patient and wait. That's such a strange mindset. True for snipers too. You just have to wait and wait for the perfect shot. Heck, snipers or assassins are eh, kind of in the same, are, they're cousins of each other, aren't they? It exposes Arya to the freedom of outside too. This is not just mere training, but it's a new life. I mean, you're melting into this population. If she keeps coming back, then she's devoted, right? She could have left. She could have walked away and never come back. And th this early on, they would have let her, right? Because they made her that offer. They're like, look, you don't have to be here. We can find you someone to marry. We can do this for you. We can get you back to Westeros. So if she had left on her own, I don't think they would care if it was early. Now, later, when she's gotten more of their secrets, that's when, you know, maybe then they'll care. So, but we'll get to that when it comes. Right now, she's still pretty early on. So if she had just decided, I like living here. I'm having a good time. Let me do this. And she just kind of fades into the life of, a, of an easy commoner. Then I think they would have left her alone. By coming back repeatedly, it proves that she belongs. And there's some interesting philosophy. They talk about the nature of death, which is something that comes up as well with Haman, who is on his deathbed. The kindly man says, do you know anyone who lives forever? And of course, no, but maybe we have certainly questions of partial immortality around the world with regards to long-lived beings or, you know, like the House of the Undying. Like, how old were those guys uh, and gals? And how old are, you know, Bloodraven's not that old. He's beyond human span. But how old is Melisandre? And how old is some of the children of the forest? And According to Benero, those who follow Azora High will live forever. So this is coming. This concept is rising in importance. So pay attention because I think it's going to get even more important later. So watch out for that if you see it in the text or anything along those lines. Let's talk about courtesans for a minute. That's another thing I want to know. Did they have connections to the faceless men? Well, not as a whole, I'm sure, but maybe a couple of them. Speaking of how Arya has access to powerful people by taking her food cart 
all over the city and being welcomed just about anywhere, courtesans also have access to powerful people in a very different way. In some ways, a lot more personal and up and close, right? Like in their bedroom close. So that's... We talk about when people have their guard down. And it really also shows, as I said at the beginning, how different Bravosi morals are. This is impossible. This type of situation is impossible in Westeros for the most part because the seven which is obviously the most popular religion by far in Westeros, is this sort of behavior is just completely off the table in a, in a culture that worships the seven. And this is kind of ironic since the Andals originated not terribly far from Bravos, but of course, this, these time lap, time, uh, this chronology doesn't overlap. The Andals migrated to Westeros before Bravos was ever founded. So it's a very rich city culturally and financially, a very different culture. While there's mummers in Westeros, here's their specific companies that put on specific themed plays. It's a much bigger deal. Uh, theater and performance is held in higher esteem here. There's more actors, there's professional actors that aren't, that make more money, that are held in higher esteem, things like that. And there's a variety, there's lots of playhouses, there's serious ones, there's comedic plays, very well developed entertainment culture. A little more on courtesans. The most well-off sex workers might be the best, might be the mistresses of noblemen. I mean, the equivalent of. And if they become famous or infamous, it's because of how much they've earned from that client. And also, though, because of that influence, they wield over those clients. And, well, they're celebrities, too. They have public personas. This is so very different from Westeros, where women are supposed to be sort of quiet behind the scenes and demure. And it's good that we have this very opposite style to have as a comparison and to see that uh, how different cultures can develop. And I mean, this is all very fictional, but not, un not, real not unrealistic at all. There's obviously this concept out in the world exists and is not abnormal at all. Let's talk about the Black Pearl, a specific famous courtesan, Belger Atheris, probably pronounced that about a thousand different ways. She's the daughter of a Summer Islands princess and the Sea Lord of Bravos. That's seriously high birth there. That's fitting, fitting for a highborn person of two expert seafaring nations that she turned out to be a captain of a swan ship. She's a pirate and a smuggler, among other things, or was a pirate and smuggler, among other things. She had a relationship with Prince Aegon, who became King Aegon the Unworthy, King Aegon the Fourth. He was sent abroad when he was a prince to prevent him from killing his own sister by impregnating her. He wasn't trying to like murder her with a knife or something, but he was just like a sex addict or something. And she was like, sort of like Elia in that she was on the frail side and he just wouldn't stay away from her. So they just sent him off. And of course, given his predilections, of course, he's going to form new relationships while he's overseas. This one lasted a long time, apparently as long as 10 years. It was an off and on thing. Uh, she had lovers at other ports, apparently, and obviously he had other lovers. So it's not clear whether any of the three kids credited to him are actually of his blood. Some, but at least one of them kind of operated as if that was the case. I mean, heck, why not? If you might be the son of a king <laughs> or daughter of a king, <laughs> you, you might want to play that up. So her daughter, Bellinora perhaps part Targaryen, decided to become a courtesan. That's where this started. Clearly, she had the connections to high society, given her mother's connections, her possible father's a prince of Westeros, 
and that's necessary in that line of work. It was kind of an open door. Like she had the a way in, uh, foot in the door, so to speak. This is like sex worker royalty almost. And historically, courtesans were and are still a thing. Like I said, I don't think that term is used anywhere in the world. I don't. I'm not aware of it being used anyway. But the concept is what matters. Uh, one example I know of from the real world and histor- historically speaking is from the time of Alexander the Great. There was a courtesan named Thais who traveled with his army. May have been his lover, was definitely a lover of his general Ptolemy, who the one who became Ptolemy the first of Egypt. They had kids together, and she's uh, credited, in quotes, <laughs> with instigating the burning of the royal palace at Persepolis shortly after the Macedonians conquered it, which was kind of after they defeated Darius in a series of battles, the war was effectively over, and the Macedonians took Persepolis, the capital. And well, during their partying, apparently this courtesan Thais was like, hey, wouldn't it be great if we burned down the palace? That's just one version of the story. There's several versions of it, but it's neat that we have that to refer to. Like so much about Bravos, because this stands out, it, the, the courtesan cultural system doesn't exist that many other places in the world. And it's in Bravos, it's the, at its peak. Part of what makes them famous. And there's a quote. The courtesans of Bravos were famed across the world. Singers sang of them. Goldsmiths and jewelers showered them with gifts. Craftsmen begged for the honor of their custom. Merchant princes paid royal ransoms to have them on their arms at balls and feasts and mummer shows. And Bravos slew each other in their names. The only Westerosi person I could think of that matches this description is Shiera Seastar, right? That, like, pretty much all those things were said of her. People fought duels over her. They paid just to sit next to her, you know, things like that. And a bunch of people tried to marry her and she always said no. And she came from East, not from Bravos, from Lise, but still worth a, uh, worth a mention that she was able to carve out a lifestyle like that in a culture that doesn't really accept that style of life. <laughs> so she was special. You know, we wonder about the, all the talk with the faceless men and the god of death, the various versions of it, the black goat, the stranger, the many-faced god, all that. You wonder how that's going to play out. You wonder if there's any, anything that matters with regards to the way these death gods are portrayed and if there's going to be anything more to that. There's a Salador San reference. More about him when we get to Davos's chapters when that's more direct, but it's, it's neat to see that referenced here. But we will be ref- referring to the quote from this chapter when we do talk about it. Um, and neat that one of the sex workers is that Arya thinks of kills a guy and is known for robbing and killing men and rolling their bodies into the canals, which is what Arya does to Darien. Although the robbing is really just taking his boots. Still, now Westerosi, of course, uh, there's some favoritism from Arya when she meets them and sends them to the good sex worker. She could send them to the ones that are murderers, but because she likes them, she doesn't. And well, it's again, just more of Arya. Like Arya favors Westerosi, not Cat of the Canals. Mm -hmm. There's this mention of a girl named Lana, which a lot of people get the alarm bells when you hear Lana with golden curls. Yep. We have Bara with black hair, (laughs) who was a Baratheon. So Lana with golden hair (laughs) as a Lannister. There's a, there's a couple of theories. One, that she's a daughter of Taisha. I do not think that could be is possible, however. Well, it's possible, but I, I, I would say no to that. And the reason is, Ina, who we mentioned last time, who has the same power as Maggie the Frog, meaning the blood magic that can tell the future, Ina says the sailor's wife's husband is dead. Well, the sailor's wife, if the sailor's wife was 
Taisha, well, the sailor's wife's husband would have been Tyrion. He's not dead. Unless, say, the sailor's wife remarried. So that is, it is possible. But I think that knocks the potential for Taisha here to down a step. However, it probably fits better as Garion's wife. Remember, Garion sailed to Valyria and never returned. So him dying, that fits. Him being dead, sailor's wife's that fits quite well. And Lana, blonde hair, could easily be his daughter. So, yes, yes. And it also is, you wonder if this ties back to Tywin. Tywin was upset about the idea of Tyrion embarrassing the family overseas, which would be kind of ironic if um, <laughs> his brother actually did father a child overseas and keep it secret from Tywin. Nina points out the moment right before Arya actually kills Darian feels reminiscent of the prologue where they go into a foggy alley and a faceless man kills someone. Yeah, that is pretty much how it happens in uh, the prologue. They go into a small alley and then he, he bites the coin and dies from it. Yep. Morley wants to, wants to know what is going to cause the Westerosi, or what's going to cause Arya to go back to Westeros eventually? Is there a piece of news? We mentioned the possibility that news will, will drive her. And will there be a Stark family reunion like we see on TV? I think we'll get some kind of Stark family reunion. Maybe not like TV, but we'll see at least a few of them come together at Winterfell, maybe. Uh, Brickon maybe will survive. <laughs> or, or not. I don't know. But as far as Trigger, that's a tough one. I think I think maybe the, the Faceless Men she, having a falling out with them might be it. Uh, as to why, one suggestion I've had is that they want to kill Danny, and she's not for that. She's like, wait, this person killed the, freed the slaves. Why would you... Because right, right now they're killing people that she are either neutral or evil. But if she if, if they take a contract out on someone who's a good person, I don't... That might cause things to go to a head. But on the other hand, it could just be news, right? It could be something she hears about John, or it could be something she hears about Sansa. Maybe John's death, something like that. I don't know. There's a lot of possibilities. It is really hard to, to pick one of them and say, that's really got to be it. Yeah, it's also hard to even say where she'll land that's in Westeros. Too. Yeah. Obviously, that's contingent on what drove her to come. Yeah. This is a partial answer with a fuller answer to come as we continue. In this chapter, the weather is actually really nice, which is the one of many things that reminds me of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which we joke about frequently, especially with our fun titles here. But there's this <laughs> couple of quotes I yanked. We have cat in the wall. Now you're talking my language, which, you know, yeah. Cat, cat in the canals, like a, like a, we were talking to her like she's one of the little birds. Like I have something to say about that too, by the way. What's that? Which is that you never, ever, ever, ever want to get your cat in your wall. <laughs> we have had a Casanova in our wall, we did. in our crawl space. We could not get him out and it is terrible. It is not a funny thing they had. It is not. <laughs> but Ari is talking about she getting followed by a dozen cats or so. And Charlie in, in one episode says, I got followed here by like 10 cats. Yeah, they're starting to follow me these days. So that's, that's exactly what's happening to Arya. So instead of Charlie Kelly and Arya Stark, we have Charlie Stark Kelly. Hmm. Yep, he's a skin changer. He is. <laughs> Tree Girl points out that like John has ghosts sort of as an anchor for her identity. Nymeria is a bit of an anchor for Arya's identity. That's a good point. Yeah. I, I guess Arya actually has a few anchors. But to be fair, so does John. To close out this chapter, one quote that's a wonderful segue to the next one. Cat of the Canals thinks of all the peoples in the world that she meets of the ports that... Her favorites were the summer islanders with their skins as smooth and dark as teak. 
They wore feathered cloaks of red and green and yellow, and the tall masts and white sails of their swan ships were magnificent. Yes. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Samwell 4. A drink with dragons, a.k.a. the one with the fat pink mast. I almost named this one the one with Kojimo because Ash and I have a cat named Kojimu. Yes, we love her so. Yes, she's our only girl cat. We have three boys. And she's a little shy, small girl. <laughs> Which is not as much uh, what Koja is in the books. No, Koja, the real Koja here, the real Koja, that's funny. <laughs> the human Koja in this book <laughs> is very much the opposite of shy. <laughs> Gilly suggests they're far enough out at sea that the gods can't see him break his vow. Now, I don't know about the gods seeing or caring, but Eamon's last days on this same sea are filled with dreams, and some of them are prophetic. So while we have a chapter that celebrates life, his and others, with some fiery beverage action to help out, while also expanding fairly majorly on the prophetic side of A Song of Ice and Fire. It's fitting that this is happening on the same ship that first brought news of Danny's dragons from Karth. The Cinnamon Wind's just a source of dragon knowledge, right? <laughs> and here's the first line. The Cinnamon Wind was a swan ship out of Tall Trees Town on the Summer Isles, where men were black, women were wanton, and even the gods were strange. It's quite a line. <laughs> yeah, okay, Sam. <laughs> but Sam quickly learns why Arya is a fan of the Summer Islanders. He becomes a fan too. And hey, there are people that have had their share of invasions, especially from slavers, but it's a far less war-torn culture, one that doesn't face semi-regular deprivation from extended winters, there isn't a great wave of conquest by a migrating race like there is for almost all the other races. In other words, there's no end-all invasion of the Summer Islands that caused all this uproar, uh, uh, tumult and change and, and suffering and ancestral memory of, of destruction and death. There's just a lot less shared cultural trauma, put that way. That just produces better outcomes for the people that they come in contact with, right? Sam's not exactly big on public speaking, but boy, does he come through here, right? He gets Eamon's life across really well. It's, it's very passionate, very meaningful, very moving. He describes Eamon's achievements, some of the things that made him great. Nails it pretty well. I mean, Eamon was... Served a lot of Lord Commanders. He turned down a, a crown. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal. Will John do the same? That's a, something we all wonder about because John and Eamon, and, or Eamon and Eamon, <laughs> have so much in common. Uh, we wonder about that a lot. It helps ease things a bit to know that the Summer Islanders revere their elder. That's a big connecting point here. Sam's genuine display of emotion for Eamon's passing may have endeared him to some of the Summer Islanders. I mean, they seem like a more easygoing bunch in general. But still, if you're a culture, if you come from a culture where older folk are revered, well, it stands to reason that you would also respect people that act as caregivers to the same older folk. And that's what Sam is showing that he's been doing here. So I think that matters a lot here, kind of an under-the-radar aspect of the chapter and of the uh, social glue holding these characters together. 
there's really no one with Eamon's vast mix of experiences all wrapped up in one person. It's not a stretch to name him one of the most knowledgeable men who have ever lived in Westerosi history, which makes this even more heartbreaking to see happen because of the timing. Somewhat the opposite of Cersei's drinking to forget. This is drinking to remember. They're toasting Aemon's life, celebrating all his deeds and his long life. And well, to toast a long life like Aemon's, you need to drink a lot, right? <laughs> it's fitting and sensible that the Summer Islanders have a positive take on death given positive takes on so many other things. That's not uncommon in real life either. Just like this courtesan system is reflective of certain real world cultural values outside of the US, for example, but still out in the world, it happens. And the same thing here. It isn't typical in the United States for people to throw a party when someone dies, but it does happen occasionally and other cultures do that more regularly. Not only is that a striking contrast to Westeros in general, but if we contrast the Summer Isles to other island peoples, like the Ironborn, the Shield Islanders, or even a micro version of this concept, they're not their own culture, they're not their own people, but the Quiet Isle is, you know, its own thing. And it has its own micro culture. They're well connected to the world because of extensive sailing and trade, but their homes are isolated from the rest of the world, right? That's also a little bit like the Quiet Isle. The Quiet Isle, they're really isolated, but they can go nearby to trade goods and to get what they need and then go back to their homes. But in this case, it goes back far, far longer. Right? In ancient times, the Summer Islanders didn't even know other people existed out there in the world. They thought the whole planet was them. Makes sense. If you've never met anybody else, why would you assume there's other things out there? But one thing I'm curious about is their connection to the Long Night. Was, what was it like for them? Was it kind of forgettable or was it a pretty big deal? I mean, these things are all relative. Even though it's difficult to imagine winter striking the Summer Islands to a degree that would cause severe harm, maybe it would. It would because their flora and fauna are not capable or not adapted to handling such a change all of a sudden. And darkness would certainly have an impact on any culture if it was long-lasting. So, hmm. The Long Night, of course, is raised indirectly here uh, another way via Aemon and his talk of dragons and prophecy and the rising of the cold winds. Again, Sam of all characters has more pieces of the overall ice and fire puzzle than just about anyone. And Aemon does, has quite a bit as well. And he's trying to pass as much of it as possible as he can to Sam. Most characters out there are really deep on one side of the ice and fire themology, if at all. Like John has the fire stuff going on in him, but he's mostly unaware of it. He's mostly just knee deep in the others in winter. Whereas Daenerys hasn't even learned of the others yet, right? I know these things are likely to happen eventually. But right now they're kind of far on their own side working their way towards the middle. So it's a huge loss for Sam and for the world. And this quote really says it all. He was the blood of the dragon, but now his fire has gone out. He was Aemon Targaryen, and now his watch is ended. Ice and fire indeed. Blood of the dragon, fire has gone out, but now his watch is ended. That, of course, is a very much cast our mind to the north and the wall. Those themes mixed very nicely here. Now, with Aemon and some of these other characters, we think of bloodlines, the mention of Stannis and his ancestry with Rael, and how he has a little bit of dragon blood is brought up here. But interestingly, that's a connection to Aemon himself. 
which, you know, he doesn't explicitly say that, but it's mostly clear. Eamon's sister was Rael, and she married the Laughing Storm's heir, Ormond. Ormond was the father of Stefan. Stefan was the father of Robert Stannis and Renly. So there you go. I guess that's great, great uncle Eamon would be <laughs> to Stannis. So that's cool. So Shireen is his great, great, great nephew or niece, rather. And Sam is also related to Shireen. <laughs> How about that? Alistair Florent's kids, remember Alistair Florent was burned by Melisandre. His kids are Rhea and Melissa. Rhea is Lord Hightower's wife, not his first wife, his fourth wife, I believe. And Melissa is Sam's mother. How about that? Sam and Eamon never talk about this connection. Sam doesn't think of it. And I, I think that might be a societal thing. Their society has long downplayed blood connections with the female line to the great emphasis of those on the male side. That leads us to this next point, which is seemingly a small thing, but it actually is huge when applied to, well, prophecy and things like that. Quote, No one ever looked for a girl, he said. It was a prince that was promised, not a princess. Oops. Rather typically, unfortunately, for this society to assume that it's a savior figure, thus it must be a man. So, hmm. But clearly, there's a lot of evidence that it's not. It seems like Daenerys is by far the most likely candidate if there's only one. There might be more than one. But still, even if there's more than one, Danny's one of them. So pretty much any scenario, Danny's included. And we also learn that it, Rhaegar apparently thought it was him for a while. And Aemon agreed? Uh, agreed with Rhaegar, or at least didn't disagree? It's not really clear how much Aemon encouraged, discouraged, or what with Rhaegar. It's just clear that they had these discussions. I lean towards him approving, because it would explain a lot of Aemon's sadness, and it would also fits in with his interest in the topics. Uh, I think if he was someone that downplayed these prophecies, he wouldn't talk about them so much. And if he felt really guilty over what happened to Rhaegar, that also might speak to uh, his attitudes towards them, his unwillingness to deal with them. On the other hand, he believes that it's a matter of saving the world, potentially. And, well, you can't allow yourself to be turned off from a subject like that just because it upsets you if you truly believe it's real, that the world hinges on it. And this is a subject Eamon has done considerable better thinking and research on it, most of his life. The language of the prophecy, the subtleties associated with analyzing that language, but he still missed this. He viewed the prince that was promised and Azor Ahai as interchangeable figures too. That's another factor. We're thinking of maybe there's multiple Azor Ahai figures, but there's also multiple prop prophetic figures of which one person could fit multiples. So there's a lot of... There's, whether the mirror casts multiple shadows or whether the shadow has multiple mirrors or both. Specifically interesting, too, that Rhaegar got it into his head that it was his son. Did the comet or something else cause that? If a bleeding star is necessary for the prince that was promised, what was the bleeding star? Uh, what, what did Rhaegar see as the bleeding star the first time when he later saw a comet? It was like, oh, that's the bleeding star. So what was the first bleeding star if it wasn't a comet? Interesting. Is there a specific dream that persuaded either Aemon or Rhaegar of any of this? We certainly know that Rhaegar had that day where he's like, it seems I must be a warrior. That wasn't a dream, apparently. That was reading something in a book. But there may have also been dreams 
there may have been dreams later or before. Maybe he was reading because of dreams. Maybe dreams drove him to the books. And of course, he mentions a dream of his brother, even though all of his brothers seem to have dreams of dragons. So that's a little puzzling. It was probably Darian because Darian's the one that had... I'm sorry, Daron. Because Daron's the one who had the most dreams. It was His life was more defined by it. It was Daron the dreamer. But Egg, of course, had the obsession with eggs and dragons. And he's the Summerhall guy. So, And Eamon said all his brothers... Again, all his brothers dreamed of dragons, he says. So then he himself apparently has some of that magic in him too because we're going to we're going to talk about it a little bit later in the same chapter he's having what appear to be dreams of the future too but let's stick with this other part he says Daenerys is the one born amidst smoke and salt the dragons prove it he's not wrong about the dragons they're pretty strong evidence but we also have the salt and smoke which crosses over into Azor Ahai and a large part of why the religion of Relor will begin championing her in Dance of Dragons Aemon confirms a few key requirements for the princess Prince slash princess that was promised, born amid smoke and salt with a bleeding star from dragon blood. It's unclear whether Eamon was aware of the Ghost of High Heart's prophecy specifically, but we do know that the Ghost of High Heart came to court with uh, Jenny of Oldstones and Duncan the Small. So Egg may have corresponded sending Eamon at the wall this information about the Ghost of High Heart. That's not unlikely, but it's also not a sure thing. And remember that Eamon says, we all deceive ourselves when we want to believe. And it's not exactly clear what he means by that, but it's easy to get close enough to it, understanding that, well, he believes his brother deceived himself. He may have believed, he's t- perhaps referring to himself with regards to believing it was Rhaegar or Rhaegar's son. Not just himself, but Rhaegar as well. But more importantly, perhaps right now, because we're, those are all characters from the past, Melisandre. Talking about how Melisandre is deceiving herself whether that's willful. He doesn't know if it's willful or dishonest. We know from seeing Cider Head, it seems to be willful and not pure dishonesty. So if you imagine all this knowledge Eamon has, it's clear there's a lot, a lot unspoken. There's a lot more that wasn't written down that he couldn't remember. His mind isn't all there. He has his good days and his bad. So this is a real major blow to Danny and her hopes. We may look back on this moment and say, wow, if only Danny had Eamon. It might be it might be one of those things where it looks like the difference between things going well and things turning into some kind of a disaster. And that's so cruel for Eamon as a character. He knows how important he is. He knows how badly he wants to get there, but he knows he, he won't do it. He knows he's not going to make it. He knows he's going to die before he can get to see her. And so he, instead of passing that on himself, he realizes it's got to be Sam. And so he says, You must convince them where I could not. Tell them, Sam. Tell them how it is upon the wall. The whites and the white walkers. The creeping cold. I think we'd all guess Sam is going to have similar difficulties convincing anyone of the truth. Especially as news of both young Griff and Daenerys become more solid and, and they kind of steal the scene maybe. If you have dragons literally invading the continent after having not existed around these parts for 150 plus years it's going to be really hard to convince people of something, not just because it's hard to convince them, but because they're going to be awfully distracted by these other things. And I'm not even mentioning Euron in all this. Like, what if he comes to Old Town? Who's going to be having sit-down conversations with the Archmasters when Euron's traipsing about looting the city? So this may be, some of this may be moot, but on the other hand, it is sort of like what we saw on TV. The Maesters were... They just wanted to sit around and debate. They didn't want to take action. They wanted to wait till the information was more solid. 
which how are you going to get more solid information all the way down there? Are you doing anything to collect the information yourself? No. <laughs> anyway, so we might see something like that. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Archmaesters are a little slow to accept this, these truths. Marwin certainly suggests they're not big on accepting magical stuff in general, prophecy, supernatural, they're kind of downplay. So it doesn't sound like he's going to have an easy time there. And he may have to convince Melisandre and Stannis that they're wrong too if events that play out in the North don't make that clear on their own. There's a lot of convincing Sam may have to do here. We can look ahead. Sam may have to become Sam the salesman. He may have to do the kind of thing he did during the election. He may have to lie a little to get people to believe the truth. As, as uh, twisted and convoluted as that sounds, it might be the case. I, I love that uh, Arian didn't get a deathbed shout out from Eamon. He was like thinking about Egg and Daron and Darion rather and his sisters and <laughs> or no, Daron. I always do that. Daron, not Darion. <laughs> no deathbed shout outs for the, the cruel brother who drank wildfire. More on the subject of willful belief. Here's a quote on the mistake that he thinks Melisandre is making compared to the mistake that he made. I allowed myself to hope. Perhaps I wanted to... We all deceive ourselves when we want to believe. Melisandre most of all, I think. So he sees it as human error, a common human error, the sort that everyone is uh, susceptible to. We all deceive ourselves when we want to believe to some degree. Some of us a little bit only, some of us a lot. And that is a huge warning regarding the general nature of prophetic interpretations. If George is telling us that pretty much everyone does this, then that means all sorts of prophecies are going to be wrong. People are going to go all sorts of places with all sorts of interpretations. I think we're all on the same page as Eamon is that Lightbringer, Stannis' Lightbringer is fake and that he's not Azorai. Now, Eamon was suspicious of that already, but once he hears about Danny, he's like, oh, okay, well, she clearly fits. So that really takes Stannis off the board. Also, he seems to think that the dragons are maybe Lightbringer. That's been a theory for a long time in this fandom that the dragons are the real Lightbringer. It even is stated that way by, I think it's um, Zarazo and Daxus. Your dragons are a flaming sword held above the world. Yeah, mm, that does sound like Lightbringer. But now Eamon is correcting himself here as he's dying. He realizes this mistake. He says this false light, meaning Stannis, will only lead the realm to dark. He doesn't think Stannis is a bad person, and nor Melisandre, just that they're misled in believing what they want to believe. And it's such an important thing that they're doing. They're trying to save the world. But that's all the more reason you have to make sure you have the right information. What a great contrast to Arya's chapter just now. Cat of the Canals is, is, has a theme of making sure you have the exact right information, of not acting on it unless you're certain. Here we have the type of information that can almost literally never be certain, yet people act as if it's a lot more certain than it is quite often. Even knowing it's uncertain, people act as if it is. What an amazing twist. And this isn't really that much of a fictional thing. It's obviously being used in a fictional story, but this is a real thing that we all do applied to a fictional world very expertly. We've got to talk about Eamon's dreams, of course. That's really important. Here's uh, the first bit. His talk was all a jumble. He spoke of dreams and never named the dreamer of a glass candle that could not be lit, and eggs that would not hatch. Mm. He said the Sphinx was the riddle, 
not the Riddler. Whatever that meant. Sam nor Eamon understand what this means, and really, neither do we, but we have some way to get our bearings on some of this. We know that Sam is about to be found by Alaris the Sphinx on orders of Marwin the Mage, who saw his approach via glass candle. So that right there crosses the Sphinx, the glass candle off this list here. But we still have the dreamer, the dreams, and the eggs potentially to deal with. But either way, this seems to be seeing the future. He's seeing what Sam's about to encounter, which is maybe not proof, but strong evidence that Eamon is slipping into the realm of the supernatural with his dreaming, which is somewhat fitting with the general, what we're told about magical powers having more uh, ability to take hold of a person within a weakened state. Uh, Fevers and Bran's coma, things like that. That's when these powers seem to come out more. In fact, Bloodraven flat out says that that is a thing with the old gods. Yeah, so what about the egg hatching and the dreams and the dreamer that were mentioned here? I'm not sure. I mean, egg hatching is a recurring thing for his family. It wasn't just his brothers who dreamed of it. It was a constant since they died out, basically. Once the dragons died out, pretty much every Targaryen king, and probably plenty who weren't kings, were thinking to some degree or trying to some degree to bring them back. And, well, what's Marwyn going to do? What's Marwyn going to do with this information? Well, we know that he tells Sam not to share it with other people because the maesters are hostile to it, which is an interesting contrast to what Aemon says that Eamon's like, oh, Danny needs to be counseled, taught, and protected by a maester sent to her. But Eamon's clearly out of touch with the rest of the Citadel because that, for Marwyn, a person who isn't out of touch, given he's there, uh, I, I believe Marwyn over Eamon on this point. On the other hand, what would Eamon say of Marwyn? Does a- I mean, Eamon should be aware of Marwyn's writings. Uh, he might have an opinion on him, uh, but we don't get that. So that's... Hmm. I do wonder if Marwyn has more to say about Eamon. He will say a few things about Eamon in Sam's final chapter. We'll talk about that then. But hmm, other way around is what I'm more curious about. Yes, the maesters may not be uh, aligned the way Eamon hoped they would be or expected them to be. Perhaps that's one of those things that he was hoping for that isn't really something he should be banking on at all. Also, the nature of death, just like it was discussed a little bit in Arya's chapter. Here's an interesting quote. Who has been beyond the wall of death to see? Only the whites, and we know what they are like. We know. Do we, though? Do we know what the whites are like? I don't think we really do. Uh, We know some things about them. And is it really only the whites? I don't think that's the case either. It perhaps depends on what you define as a white. Is Stoneheart a white? Was Beric a white? And Beric wonders about some of these very same things. (laughs) He points out his own memory loss, but he doesn't, he hasn't clearly lost all his memory. So whites do have some memories, apparently. What about John? Is John going to be a fire white? We've talked about calling him that. Is that an appropriate term? Is that what Eamon means when he's talking about it? Would Eamon consider John a fire white if he was there to see it? I don't know. What about Melisandre? I don't know if she's ever died, but she's of an advanced, you know, beyond normal lifespan. It's interesting to think about this. There's uh, people who have maybe seen the other side that aren't whites. Very curious. Another one, like, what about the Kyborg, Robert Strong? Does he have memories? Oh. Gilly is another important part of this chapter. She's much improved in terms of her mood. She's doing better. It's good to see. Uh, she interacts with the crew. She's you know has her moment with Sam. It's, it's good to see her recovering. She has more reason to hate John than anyone else in the world, but she's the one 
that explains to Sam why, yeah, it, it's, it's hard, but she understands it in a way. She's sort of made peace with it. Not that she definitely agrees, but she's over it as much as she can ever be over something so traumatic. But she's it sounds like she's forgiven. And that's good for Sam. Because Sam, of course, as someone who loves Gilly, doesn't wouldn't want to go against her on such an important thing. So she's sort of leading the way here and saying, look, it's okay for you to forgive John too. And this name, the way they think of naming the kid Eamon Steelsong, well, that's cool. Good name. And there's an Aegon Battleborn as well. It's like Eamon Steelsong and Aegon Battleborn. Of course, Aegon Battleborn is a, f- a fray outlaw. <laughs> so I don't know what the deal with him is. We've never even really heard him mentioned. He's just in the appendix in the family tree. At the end of the... Gilly claims that this act of them being together makes her Sam's wife. <laughs> Obviously a layover from Craster's teachings. Uh, but that also sets off Sam's guilt because he was just accusing Darian about getting married and all that. And he's like, oh, have I done the same thing? Well, then the guilt is addressed by, you know, this is, of course, we can think of John and Agrit when he had a similar level of guilt. This is... Uh, kind of following in his footsteps in a sense, parallel themes here, thinking about the words, the oaths, but also the duty and the love, like how the duty they have to this person to be good to them now that they've established a relationship of, of sorts. Sam thinks it through, but ultimately it's interesting too that this shadow of Eamon's death is over all this because it's Eamon who taught John about duty and love and everything. And here comes Kojimo to give an entirely different take yeah, Eamon is wise and experienced in a lot of ways, but eh, Koja is a vital piece of the love versus duty theme here. She's been taught about love and duty from an entirely different way. Sam has learned it from a guy that emphasized duty over love, who chose duty in a realm that really emphasizes duty over love. Whereas the Summer Islanders don't. The Summer Islanders seem to, to esteem them equally or perhaps put love above duty. So that's part of why it's so important to get other takes on their philosophy. Westeros is obviously not the world. You know, as much as, especially if you're from the US, you're probably m- more used to the attitudes that come from places like the Night's Watch than you do from places like the Summer Islands. But Eamon, he's an old man of royal magical blood. He's an academic. He has not experienced the world. He's never had real relationships. He doesn't have love experience. As sad as it sounds, it's, it's a fact, right? He has felt love for his family, but he's not felt romantic love. Kojimo has a hugely different upbringing. Her life has been all about travel and experiencing the world. She's not soft by any means. She's the commander of the archer squad on the ship a job of esteem and importance in a world where piracy is widespread. So it's doubly important because as valuable as Eamon's advice has been to Sam, he's still the son of an extremely abusive father who forces and expects very, very strict and specific codes of behavior. It's important for Sam to be open to new perspectives from other authority figures, people he respects, people he can move on from, his people who can help him move on from what he learned from his father, from some of the worst aspects of Westerosi culture, that are weighing him down and learning that these things are not universal. They may be powerful and strong in Westeros, but they are not worldwide. And perhaps the cultural thing too, for the Summer Islanders, they seem to pay attention more, or at least in this scene, it seems that way, that they are more observant about moods. Maybe that's because they care more about such things. It's it's more a cultural uh, value. So Koja seems to understand that, and so does Kahuru Mo, that working is going to help him 
rather than wallowing in despair and wallowing in anxiety and you're thinking too much, getting out there and being in the sun and scrubbing the deck and all this stuff, it's better, right? That's a good, that's the therapeutic. And uh, Sam may, maybe doesn't understand that, but he, he starts to realize it after the fact. Here's the lesson from Kojo. This is just really good. It's, it's pretty perfect. There is no shame in loving. If your septons say there is, your seven gods must be demons. In the Isles, we know better. Our gods gave us legs to run with, noses to smell with, hands to touch and feel. One of the lessons here is a lot of ways to interpret this, but just simply put, appreciate life for what it is. Use what the gods gave you. It's really well-timed advice too. And Gilly, it worked on Gilly too. Uh, she's, it's, it's about seizing the moment too. Life is, is full of ups and downs, especially these guys' lives. Um, you never know when some awful disease or urine or <laughs> winter will strike. So enjoy it while you can. And this is their moment. They're out on the ship at sea. When are they going to have a better chance than this? <laughs> maybe they will, but maybe they won't. So take it while you can. Yeah. And, and Sam has seen the apocalypse coming. He's killed another. What kind of a world doesn't allow the only living killer of another to have sex? Come on. Come on. <laughs> Let him have a little fun. Let them both have a little fun. Yeah. So his, he thinks his oaths, though. His oaths really weigh him down. He thinks he cannot have a wife. Gilly's like, look, you said that oath in front of a weirwood tree. Quote. In the forest, they see all. But there are no trees here. Only water, Sam. Only water. And you wonder about that. Can they? Can they really? I mean, are they only being seen <laughs> by somebody else? I think they probably could be seen by Blood Raven or whoever. But I don't think they care. I, I think that's the bigger point. It's like, no. I don't know. I think Blood Raven's a perv. <laughs> He'd care in that way. He wouldn't care about the broken vow, but he'd be like, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, that fat pink mask. <laughs> so, and of course, there's other factors besides Blood Raven. I mean, you've got things like glass candles. I mean, we're actually heading towards a place that has a glass, has several glass candles, and that's a, a device that supposedly allows you to see far away. So, but yet again, if you're using your glass candles to watch a couple people have sex on a ship, then I've got better ideas for what you can use with those candles. The horn. Another briefly mentioned here is that of all the things Sam gave up to pay for their passage, he didn't give up the horn. Of course, the horn is a broken horn. They just probably didn't think it was worth anything. They're like, yeah, that's not going to get you anything from us. So, But it does get mentioned, and he's bringing it to Old Town where Euron may fix it, blow it, do all sorts of damage, or... Dornish Dame says, Summer Islanders celebrating someone's life following their death through sex and possibly creating new life makes you think of Mel's insistence that only death can pay for life. Circle of life and both. Hey, that's a cool way to look at it. I did not think of that. Very good. Dornish Dame also says, The current Lady Hightower is Sam's aunt, so it would be logical step if he went to visit and got us eyes inside the Hightower. Oh, yeah. That's a great point, too. That's, he's got kin inside the Hightower, so it's a really easy way to consider that George might show us to us that way. Good point. Okay. Cersei 8. Dragonstone has fallen, a.k.a. the Tower of Frog. The one where Loras may have been killed, though dying is not dead. It's actually a bit of a pattern we're seeing for the opening of Cersei chapters. Check out the first line. The day had been cold and gray and wet. It had poured all morning, and even when the rain stopped that afternoon, the clouds refused to part. 
Moraine, I mean. That's what I'm talking about. It's like a blind melon song, right? It's been around for several of her chapters, including in the first line, two other times in this book. So we've had eight chapters of Cersei. Three of those eight, the first line has rain in it. <laughs> the day after, though, there's a nice sunrise, but that day gets worse for her all along as it goes. And by the end of the day, there's clouds covering. So it's kind of matching the decline of the day as the weather goes. Just like it has in the other chapters, a lot of time has passed because we can see that at the end of last chapter, she sends, you know, Loras and the men uh, go off to Dragonstone to break, to finish off that siege or to push it forward. It's already in progress, the siege, but obviously Loras gets it moving, turns it into an assault. And since the end of the last chapter, we've had all that happen and news of what's, of how that all went down with the ship returning. She's excited about the taking of Dragonstone, also excited that Loras is dying because she was hoping for one or the other and got both. But she barely blinks at the heavy losses, which we're not going to blink at because that seems relevant. A thousand more people dead, according to Orain. It was important people, uh, meaning young nobles and knights, a lot of their best. This is disturbing because Cersei, again, is about as happy as we've ever seen her. And... And this is the news that makes her happy here. And she's and it's so petty because Loris' death isn't really that big of a deal for her. I mean, it's not that politically important. Uh, it's more of a personal vendetta thing. And of course, she's very confused about the difference between those two things. She lets them overlap. She thinks about how her father, again, would be proud of what she's doing. And again, she's wrong. So despite this euphoria, though, She's taking the threat of the Ironborn a lot more seriously because the news has just been continuous and bad. And even she can't uh, ignore that. She says this allows her, the taking of Dragonstone, that is, to release the Red Wine fleet so they can help relieve the Shield Islands. That's going to help them ferry soldiers over from the mainland to the Shields. They know that that's the real issue. Is They've got the men to take the Shield Islands back. Getting them there is the problem because the Ironborn obviously are going to rule the seas in between. We have reason to suspect that the Red Wine fleet, though, is going to fail to get there. They're not going to get all the way around because they're going to be destroyed by Euron on the way. It's the battle he's preparing for at the end of the Forsaken chapter. Heck, maybe they win. <laughs> they beat Euron. No, I really, really, really don't think so. But it's interesting to consider that this relief force is also going to fail. The Shield Islands will maybe still be held. Even though Euron planned on losing them, maybe they won't. So anyway, from the World of Ice and Fire, we get a different perspective. Before we were looking at things from the Ironborn side, here we get to see how this, what's happening on the West Coast is another throwback, another turning back the clock. This is the way things used to be in the Reach in the West. Quote. Many of these monarchs shared a common foe, for during these dark and bloody centuries, seaborne reavers from the Iron Islands dominated almost all of the Western shore, from Bear Island to the Arbor. With their swift longships, the Ironborn were able to strike and depart before any response came. Their raiders oft came ashore at unexpected places, taking their enemies unaware. Though the Ironmen seldom ventured far inland, they controlled the Sunset Sea and exacted cruel tribute from the fisher folk along the coasts. Having established themselves upon the Shield Islands by killing all the men they found there, and claiming the women as their own, the Ironborn even raided up the Mander with impunity. King Cahorid, 
the most fearsome of these ironborn overlords, boasted that his writ ran wherever men can smell salt water or hear the crash of waves. Ironborn clamor for a return to the old ways, and Balon tried and failed to bring back, but this is pretty much it. This is this is the old style. The way is one thing, the culture is one thing, but the, having the West Coast open to them, the raiding up the Mander with impunity is what they're doing right now. So really, this is far more of the old way being reborn than anything Balon aimed for or certainly succeeded. And look at that last line, wherever men can smell the salt water, hear the crash of waves, he boasted about his writ. Now, what does Euron say during the Kingsmood speech? Quote, We are the ironborn, and once we were conquerors. Our writ ran everywhere. The sound of the waves was heard. And there you go. And oh, this King Quarred, Quarred the Cruel, he was called in the Reach, just happened to capture and sack Old Town and take lots of prisoners back to the Iron Islands where they served as thralls. Now, Euron taking a bunch of prisoners back to the Iron Islands used as thralls. That's where I think there's a little difference here. But what Euron might do with a large group of people, I really wonder about that. He's already shown sacrificing a person or two can change the winds. We see this through Makoro. We see this through Melisandre. So changing the winds with a sacrifice is apparently possible. We've got enough evidence to be pretty confident there. What happens if you sacrifice a whole bunch of people at once? Does that cause like a storm? Something Euron has called himself? I am the storm, you know? Uh, hmm. So that's the thing. You're, in order to sacrifice a whole bunch of people, you need a whole bunch of people. And well, Old Town has that. So uh, it's one of the many things Euron might do with Old Town in, in addition to the horn, in addition to the citadel, in addition to going to the top of the high tower, in addition to looting artifacts, in addition to whatever. And there's all these people. That's part of the picture. Their blood might be used for some sort of awful magic, uh, let alone what happens to the city itself. So goodness, this is something we, we just got to know. This is exciting. Back to King's Land. Tana doesn't show up that evening, and Cersei doesn't think anything of it. But perhaps the news from Dragonstone spurs her to action. She's consoling Marjorie, And as a spy, that might be a great time to get something from her. And as Nina writes, it's where Tana needs to be. It's where a lot of these highborn women are expected to be the queen, meaning Marjorie, not Cersei. Her brother has just received a fatal injury. So, of course, consoling her, spending time with her, that's just... Tana does show up the next day, though, to talk to Cersei. And this is when she encourages Cersei to shirk her queenly duties, saying, hey, let's dress up as commoners, go and hang out at, at bars and see what people are saying. This is another piece of evidence that Tane is a spy, by the way. This is the kind of thing that we see spies do. You dress up as somebody else and go listen to what people are saying. This is lower level spying. This isn't, you know, sneaking through the walls and stealing documents. But still, this is in line with what uh, the type of whispers that, say, Varus collects. And of course, we suspect Tana is working for Varus specifically. And Joe writes on the same subject... As readers, our time in King's Landing has taught us to be suspicious and cynical about basically everything. So why is Tana suggesting they go off into the city? Is this a suggestion from Marjorie to get Cersei out of court so they can issue some declaration or just something even more extreme like murdering Cersei while she's in the city without guards? I mean, it's, that's probably not it, but it's worth considering. It's certainly possible. I don't think Varys wants Cersei dead because he wants her in charge and ruining things. So that's still, though, it's worth considering. I feel like 
if they had tried to kill her, I guess Varys would have known and stopped it. Oh, wow. He's like, don't kill her. Yeah, yeah he's like, no, you know, exactly. Because <laughs> you feel like the Tyrells, if they wanted to kill Cersei, I think they could have. Yeah, that's a that's a good point, actually. Like, Elena might want to take her out and be like, Yeah, like, they can poison her. They can do... Yeah, there's a number of ways they could have killed her. They've had access enough. Especially now that she's... What she's doing to Marjorie. Like, I don't know if Elena... How aware of that she is of, of this plotting. Like, I'm sure Tana has told Varys about it, but Varys would be like, yeah, let her do it. Let her screw both of these houses up. Yeah. <laughs> let, her, let, her let, let her cause them to go to war with each other. Speaking of... Cersei just not caring about what happens to innocent people or soldiers or whatever you. More innocent dwarfs are at her feet now. More bodies thanks to Cersei's bounty on Tyrion. It's so typical of her reign that people are killing and dying over something that has essentially no chance of working. Tyrion is connected, meaning has powerful friends. A common person might, might see him. That's pretty unlikely, but I suppose it's not impossible in theory. But capturing and killing Tyrion? When you're a poor guy walking down the road, how is that possible? <laughs> when there's an awful... It just reminds you that when there's an awful leader at the top, it empowers awful people below, even if it isn't always direct actions that causes it. It's just these attitudes trickle down. Some are a lot less awful, though. In, in one case, we have a person that shows up with information on dwarfs, but doesn't actually bring any heads, just information. So that, we get to do some dot connecting. Here's a quote. One said that the imp was hiding in an old town brothel, pleasuring men with his mouth. It made for a droll picture, but Cersei did not believe it for an instant. The second claimed to have seen the dwarf in a mummer's show in Bravos. The third insisted Tyrion had become a hermit in the Riverlands, living on some haunted hill. Not sure about that Old Town brothel bit. I don't know. Maybe we'll hear about that one later. Maybe when we see more of Old Town, we'll find out there's a dwarf sex worker there. And that'll be that. But the Mummer's show in Bravos, we do know of. It's probably Bobino, the actor, who does portray Tyrion in a play called The Bloody Hand. So <laughs> that's a little closer because it's actually an actor playing Tyrion. We saw a version of that on TV. It wasn't entertaining, actually. The third one mentioned, of course, is the ghost of Highheart. A sly nod to a giver of prophecies, which is a big part of this chapter. Not her, but a different giver of prophecies, Maggie the Frog. Now, interestingly, too, the ghost of Highheart is connected to Aemon and Rhaegar. She is referred to as a dwarf woman, but otherwise she has nothing to do with Tyrion. And yeah, so she's the one that showed up uh, along with Duncan the Small and Jenny of Old Stones to introduce the prophecy that the prince that was promised would be born of the line of Jaehaerys and uh, Sarah, which is, uh, you know, the line of Ares and Rhaella and Daenerys and all these folks. So Daenerys is uh, probably the one. But still, interesting that it came from her, of all people. And that's a segue to Maggie the Frog. We, of course, explained all this back at the start of her arc so we could keep it close in mind as we read her chapters. So we did the groundwork ahead of time on Maggie so that we could be watching it play out. So we don't have to go through all of the prophecy stuff here, but some of it will still go back through because it's uh, we, we have some different things to say. The man from Tyrosh bringing her a dwarf head used the term Valonqar, which was a bit of a trigger for Cersei sending it to chill through her. Remember, she hadn't really told anybody about this, although she just, she certainly starts to. George has Cersei and her friends when they're, when she's thinking of it, when she's remembering, it's like they've stepped into another world going into Maggie's tent. But honestly, it just sounds like a Trader Joe's to me. <laughs> Quote, the inside of the tent was full of smells. Cinnamon and nutmeg, pepper, red and white and black, almond milk, 
and onions, cloves and lemongrass and precious saffron and stranger spices. Rarer still. Those are all food. I really like your description <laughs> of this. Just almond milk. Yeah. yeah it's Trader Joe's. It's literally all food. Every single, there's even a single example that isn't food <laughs> other than the stranger spices, rarer still. But still, they're spices. That's still just food. And it's, it's appropriate, though, to introduce her that way. She had married a wealthy merchant, which that might be a story worth hearing. This person married a wealthy merchant. Wait, why did, they marry, why did this merchant marry her? <laughs> anyway, I don't know. But they founded House Spicer. Yes, strange spices. Yeah. And they were raised to the nobility by Tywin's father. Titos was an easy man to convince and cajole. But that's another thing I wonder about. What did they do to convince him that that was the right thing? Or did they bribe him? Picturing, by the way, she got she married the merchant. She was just like, you marry me, you're going to become a lord in your own right. <laughs> and then it happened. That's a great point. <laughs> But no, I do just genuinely just imagine like anyone else she can have wealth connections. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, she's older now. She was. She it's hard to imagine her at, at her age and what she looks like in this situation. But yeah, she wasn't always like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's true. Uh, obviously, Maggie's even at this point. Maggie was old at that point. And she's no longer alive at this point. So yeah, that that's you're right. She had a whole life before any of this. Still, it might be a good story. Yeah, and if she is, as you're about to say, she's Jane Westerling's great grandmother. Yeah. So she's probably not that unattractive back then, too. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. I mean, again, that's definitely what I was thinking when you're like wealthy merchant. Anyway, yeah. So that would have been Jane Westerling's great grandmother, or is Jane Westerling's great grandmother. So if Jane and Rob had a kid, Maggie the Frog would have been the great great grandmother of that child. <laughs> that's kind of funny. So here's the thing George did to link Cersei and Ned. This is why I called the chapter The Tower of Frog. Quote, She dreamt an old dream of three girls in brown cloaks, a wattled crone, and a tent that smelled of death. Now here's Eddard 10. He dreamt an old dream of three knights in white cloaks and a tower long fallen and Lyanna in her bed of blood. So you have a woman, the smell of death, you have three knights in white cloaks versus three girls in brown cloaks. He dreamt an old dream. She dreamt an old dream. Boom. Also, there's this line. They were three in the dream as they had been in life. And there's in the dream, his friends rode with him as they had in life. George is uh, ca- calling back the Tower of Joy for sure. In, in his dream, Ned is filled with milk of the poppy and pain because he's just broken his leg after facing Jamie in the streets there. Uh, Cersei, on the other hand has just tasted the salt of Marjorie's tears when delivering the news to Laura. So this is a very different trigger for these thoughts. We're going to have another dream with similar language when we get to Veramir's chapter. And maybe again sometime? Not yet, but maybe George will do this again in The Winds of Winter or The Dream of Spring. So we'll have uh, something to keep an eye out for. So she does finally bring up the prophecy uh, to other people, um, meaning to people who are in a sense of having getting help from it. She's already mentioned it to Tana. But Pycelle and Kyburn bringing up, this is, this is another level. Uh, whether she can change the result is what she wants to know. And this theme comes up again, just as we expect the Archmaesters of the Citadel to be unhelpful, if not somewhat hostile or denigrating the prophecy, with, of course, a few exceptions like Marwyn and Aemon, etc. Well, Aemon is not an Archmaester, but still, same point. Here, it's similarly reflected, where Kyburn's like, has is, is more engaging with the topic where Pycelle is like, eh, 
And it's interesting that Cersei dismisses Pycelle's advice, even though Pycelle is right. <laughs> should her morrow been have, should have been foretold? Kyburn's like, should we know our future? And Cersei's like, well, that's not very helpful. And he, she's right. Like, that's not helpful. It's too late. Like, he, she already knows. But it is a good point. Maybe it would have been more tactful to say that some other time. But yes, I think Cersei would have to agree that knowing is not helping her life and making it any better, unless she can stop it, which she's still open to the possibility of, which Kyburn says, yes, you can do. You have to kill her. And of course, by her, he means Marjorie. But we're all very, very doubtful that it's a sure thing that Marjorie is the younger, more beautiful queen. And this is also an interesting route. Tyburn at first tries to discredit it. He's like, okay, well, first of all, let's just gently propose to Cersei that maybe this isn't something to worry about. But Cersei gives a pretty good breakdown and says, look, no, Maggie's predictions were too precise to be generic fortune teller con artistry. Right, which is, that's certainly a thing. For example, the line, a younger, more beautiful queen will come to replace you. Well, yeah, of course, there's going to be more queens in the future and you're going to get older and eventually, you know, but beauty is subjective, but still the point is the same thing. There will be people who find this person more beautiful than you. But yeah, but of course that's going to happen. <laughs> there's always going to be another queen who comes along and some of them are going to be beautiful, but they're all going to be younger. <laughs> But knowing that she's going to have three children and knowing that she had, that Robert's going to have 16, that's awfully precise and it seems to be completely accurate too. So eh. Nina thinks the younger, more beautiful queen is going to be Arianne because she thinks Arianne's going to marry young Griff and that's going to, and young Griff will be the one that pushes Cersei aside to cast the Lannisters out of power, so to speak. Yeah, I do agree with that much. So that does fit. I still think it could be Daenerys that the prophecy is referring to, but I'm not like married to that. I think Arianne is a totally cromulent possibility. I just want to take a moment. This is a good time here for me to mention the, chat, the people in the chat, like Dornish Dame, Noga F were pointing out the ways that Cersei could have broke this prophecy. Like if she'd just taken moon tea to prevent and end any third pregnancy she could have ever had. Oh, wow. <laughs> or if she had just like made a point to try to have the fourth child. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, et cetera. You wonder if she's not, she just doesn't think she could have a fourth child because... Because of it. But you got to think, like, she definitely could have kept herself from having a third. She was worried about having a fourth, too. Like, she acted as if it was, you know, she still, like, told Lancel not to, you know, finish inside her and all that. So she's... Yeah, maybe she should have let him. So <laughs> 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 actually, I need a fourth kid. <laughs> So here's another point about prophecy. This is directly from George and his thoughts on prophecy. This is pretty illuminating, actually. It, it gets us to maybe the way George approaches prophecy as a theme throughout the books. Uh, here's the, the question asked of him. Surely the plot is very unpredictable despite all the prophecies you give to help us. Prophecies are, you know, a double-edged sword. You have to handle them very carefully. I mean, they can add depth and interest to a book, but you don't want to be too literal or too easy. In the Wars of the Roses that you mentioned, there was one lord who had been prophesied that he would die beneath the walls of a certain castle. And he was superstitious at that sort of walls. So he never came anywhere near that castle. He stayed thousands of leagues away from that particular castle because of the prophecy. However, he was killed in the first battle of St. Paul de Vence 
And when they found him dead, he was outside of an inn whose sign was the picture of that castle. (laughs) So, you know, that's the way prophecies come true in unexpected ways. The more you try to avoid them, the more you are making them true. And I make a little fun with that. Yeah, she's casting herself down. She's making the prophecy come true by going after Marjorie in such dangerous ways. The younger, more beautiful queen will come to cast you down and take all your whole deer or whatever. She's making this happen by plotting against Marjorie in ways that harm herself. Yeah. But if we look at George's words, try to apply it to the entire series. Well, one of my favorite theories is the one about Euron being awakened by blood raven uh, as a possible green seer, as a possible savior of the world. Whereas Euron might be the one that causes the others to be free into the world again. Not the one who awoke them up. Obviously, they're already awake, but meaning the one who brings down the wall. So wouldn't that be the ultimate of all these different prophecies that are self-fulfilled by trying to prevent a prophecy from happening and cause it to, to happen? Well, if Bloodraven was out there trying to prevent the return of the others or trying to stop the next long night, he may have caused it by awakening Euron in this way. So obviously that's... Uh, something that we can't be super confident on as a theory, but I think it's strong and worth considering and we'll keep an eye out for more evidence for it later. So one thing that happens to people, this is something I understand pretty well from my own experience in life, which is that I used to be a former poker player professionally. And what Cersei's doing here is very much akin to what a gambler on a hot streak does. Someone that's running good. They're, they're having a lot of luck in a row, which happens. and she feels like she's running good here. She's got Dragonstone and Loras and all these things are working out for her. And I feel like that's part of this high she's on that makes her think that she can go after Marjorie in this way with this whole Osney plan, which obviously, as we'll see in the next chapter, falls apart spectacularly. Not only is this a bad gamble, but the game is rigged, right? She's got informers like Tana you know, working against her most likely. Certainly the Tyrells are, are cleverer than she's given them credit for. We may have Varus in the walls along with Tana. So, yeah, mm, Cersei, not as clever as she thinks she is, just like a lot of uh, gamblers on hot streaks. <laughs> Interesting mention of, of the pyromancer asking for any eggs that they find at Dragonstone. An interesting consideration given Aemon's dreams just now. Although I'm not sure that's connected. It certainly does. Uh, it's at least worth mentioning. Nina mentioned this is kind of funny that he requests these dragon eggs right after in the same chapter, we're getting news that the Iron Bank is making moves. They're pulling loans. They're demanding repayment of loans given to allies of the crown because they're starting to work against the crown because Cersei's not paying them back. So it's starting slow, but ominously in terms of how that's going to escalate. Calling in all these loans, that's a big deal. Remember, this is another connection to Ares, by the way. We went over this several chapters ago, but Cersei and the Iron Bank is very similar to Ares and the Iron Bank, especially considering there was a fleet involved in both. We're going to keep spending money on a fleet instead of paying the Iron Bank back. But the funny part here is that the Iron Bank may still own the three dragon eggs Alyssa Farman traded for gold when she built the Sun Chaser. <laughs> so that's pretty funny that we have this uh, mention of the pyromancer wanting dragon eggs right next to the Iron Bank demanding repayment for gold when they also probably have dragon eggs. Again, as she thinks about how she's acting like her father and how her father would be proud, let's uh, not miss that she does almost the same thing Tywin does with regards to uh, Giles Rosby. In Tywin's case, it was 
Gregor Clegane, where he just yelled at Pycelle and is like, I don't care. Save his life. I don't care how close to death he is. I demand that you save him. And that's what Cersei's doing with Gar- with Giles Rosby. He's like, you will save Giles Rosby. <laughs> or else, like, wait, he's literally coughing up pieces of lung. What is he supposed to do? But Cersei's concern here is Garth the Gross, the one who was going to be Master of Coin before Cersei quickly replaced that notion with Giles Rosby on the fly. Well, now Giles Rosby is no longer an option. And so here comes the possibility of Garth the Gross again. We also see that Marjorie is playing some new game from Volantis with her cousins. This might be Syvas. And that's interesting because we're about to see Syvas more up and close in The Princess and the Tower. I don't think uh, we've heard of Syvas in King's Landing before, but it is established in Dorne because we know that Marcella's been playing it with uh, Tristane. Maybe uh, Marjorie can have a game against Arianne <laughs> or with Young Griff. Uh, Joe notes that... Loris's injuries sound very similar to Aerys Oakhart's, minus the uh, you know chopped off head and the boiling oil. But the the way he took crossbow bolts was almost identical. Two crossbow bolts, one in thigh, one in shoulder. That's really similar. We've seen evidence that Marjorie is maybe sharper that she's than she's seemed at certain points. <laughs> she commands Cersei to give the full story of Loris. Commands, and Cersei's like mm, commands. Huh? I'll let that pass. But it could just be a bit of venting on Marjorie's point part. But on the other hand, she senses Cersei is eager to give these details. So it's like an opportunity to get a leg up on Cersei in their back and forth here. Um, maybe it's a little both. It's interesting how Cersei is again a little bit like Robert talking about how ruling is... Like, that's the one thing Robert was right about <laughs> is that ruling is blah, blah, blah. It's, it's really tedious. She, again, compares herself to Robert when she sees Jalabar Joe and thinks about how she's just putting him off like Robert did. <laughs> and it's like, eh, next year, next year. And of course, it's funny that we get Jalabar Joe mentioned this chapter. It's uh, three chapters in a row with Summer Islanders. All right. Uh, I think that the Warrior Sons, of course, piling on and on, they just keep growing in, in presence. And as we said, some time has passed here. So a notable difference here. We've seen about 100 knights turning up, uh, joining the ranks and Cersei has issues here, a couple of issues here. Um, she's not liking how they're being aggressive towards the brothels. She says, look, brothels are important. You know, we don't, we need men to be able to go do that or they're going to start killing people. That's one of the things you kind of agree with Cersei on. She's like, that's actually, yeah, it's one of the reasons why legalized sex work is a pretty good idea. But that's not why Cersei says it. She's just more concerned with her own power and control. But here's a great catch from Nina. The debate with the High Sparrow Septons on that topic reminds us of um, an anecdote from history. More protests came when Baylor went on to outlaw prostitution within King's Landing. And no one could impress on him how much trouble that would cause. More than a thousand whores and their children, it is said, were rounded up and put out of the city. The unrest that followed was something that King Baylor chose not to acknowledge as he busied himself with his newest project, a great sept that would be built on top of Visenya's hill, a sept that he said he had seen in a vision. Man, Visenya probably would not have liked that sept. No. <laughs> she would not. Insult. <laughs> she would not. You're right. <laughs> Maybe she'll be happy if it blows up. Her, her shade will be like, finally, got rid of that abomination. Which, by the way, I, I didn't have any notes on that here. 
But the fact that Baylor saw it in a vision, you wonder that so many of the Targaryens see like their visions involve like things burning up and exploding or dying or whatever. There's so much of that. So you again, it's sketchy whether the Baylor Sept will be blown up on, in the books uh, in the same way it was in the show, but that's it might a, happen as part of something else. That's a really funny idea, just the idea of it getting blown up. And so Baylor saw a vision, but he just needed to see it like two seconds past where he saw it. He saw it right before. <laughs> he saw the dream backwards. He saw it like it emerging from yeah. the ashes. <laughs> <laughs> Baylor was backwards about a lot of things, right? So anyway... So she doesn't really, it doesn't really click with Cersei about the, the knights coming into the city and how this is going to be a, a problem if it continues. She's just sort of handling these problems as they come, not really looking ahead. But she's more concerned with Lancel returning to the city, which that is a real concern because he knows things that can incriminate her. So that's real bad. As before, it's clear Marjorie has continued with pushing Tommen to take more power in order to improve her own share while lessening Cersei's. And that might be part of what happens here when Cersei is openly talking about pulling Marjorie's tongue out and not telling Tommen that there's better people than Loras and all this. is just really not very good mothering, to put it mildly. Nina writes, poor Tommen, not only has his stand-in big brother, who is infinitely nicer to him than his actual older brother Joffrey, not only has he had these serious, possibly fatal, injury, fatal injuries, but his mom is now casually talking about ripping out his wife's tongue? What? I mean, this is very oblivious, very mean, right? They're just very self-centered. Note that Cersei doesn't even think about informing Tommen. She knows Tommen cares about Loras, and she knows Tommen cares about Marjorie, but she's willfully against that. She wants Tommen to not like them, but she goes about it all the wrong way here um, by being mean, being callous in front of him in a way that he can understand very clearly. I mean, this is, uh, it causes him to, to step up a little. He gets uh, some spine and, and yells at her. And, um, well, Cersei handles this the way she handles just about any back talk, which is with threats. Of course, the threats are against this whipping boy, which Tommen, being gentle and, and compassionate, doesn't want that to happen. So he backs down, but only for now. Cersei thinks to herself, she would kill half the lords in Westeros and all the common people if that's what it took to keep him safe. Uh, on one, in, in a vacuum, well, okay, a mother you know, being viciously protective of her kid is one thing, but she really would kill half the lords in Westeros and all the common people. It's not hyperbole. It's not just talk. She really is that ruthless. And, that, and also, her notion of what keeps him safe is just wrong. Like, having Loras and Marjorie, if she were friendly towards them and made a, a little bit less combative and less conspiratorial and less paranoid, this might go decently well. Sure, the Tyrells would still try to get one over on her from every once in a while, but it could be a good working relationship, especially if Tommen and Marjorie genuinely like each other and Loras. Like, this is the type of thing that we see all over Westeros as relationship building. That's why Bron Jean Royce wants Sweet Robin to hang out with Harold Harding and all these other young lords of the Vale so that they become friends. That's, it is a path to peace. That's the whole point of the fostering system and the squiring system is that these lords and ladies and knights have relations, personal relationships that help them avoid these great civil conflicts in the future. It's very important to peace. Cersei's undermining that as well as so many other things. 
Cersei knows how many small folk too. This is another thing that she just turns a blind eye to or willfully gets mad at. She she's thinking about how three thousand commoners turned out to cheer Loras when he left for battle. They're popular, and that's a bad thing for Cersei to go up against. Or she needs to be careful going up against popular people. All right, like uh, when she has Marjorie arrested, backfires a little bit. Not entirely. Well, it does backfire a lot overall. But part of the backfiring is her popularity in the commoners. They're, they're not happy with Marjorie's arrest. They like her. They like the Tyrells. They, you know, food, spending time with them. They have a good reputation amongst the commoners. So it's tough to go up against that. So the other two girls in Cersei's dream, let's go back to Maggie the Frog for a second and talk about that. The only farman we ever meet in the main series, and we don't actually ever meet her, which is a little funny to think about considering the farmans are pretty big in fire and blood, but very little here. And interestingly, Cersei's actually kind of humble about Jane Farman. Uh, she says she was the wise one of the group who fled the tent and didn't have her fortune read. And it was like, yeah, that girl's got 12 kids. She's living on Fair Isle. Yeah, she was the smart one. <laughs> Not often Cersei admits a mistake. It's actually kind of noteworthy that she, that piece of humility, even though it's internal, she would never share that with other people, but hey, it is there. I wonder too if that's uh, ominous as well for maybe maybe Jane Farman won't have such a great life after all. Fair Isle has historically had lots of trouble with the Ironborn. They're perhaps lucky that Euron went for the Shields and just skipped the West entirely. Still, and, and to me, that suggests that maybe the West is part of his plans for another reason. Maybe we're going to see Euron and Cersei team up later. Who knows? Who knows? Nina wants to remind us to be sure to know that Cersei definitely murdered Malara. Um, she's the one who pushed her in the well. There's evidence in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. There's some evidence here. Maggie specifically refers to Malara's death as she, that is Cersei herself. There's no one else in the room. She's speaking to Malara and says, your death is here. Can you smell her? Or she is here with you. Something like that. And it's not Maggie. <laughs> Maggie does not kill Malara. Not that we know of. So I seriously doubt Maggie pushed her down in the well. So yeah, so Cersei did that almost certainly 99.9%. And she did it in part to stop the prophecy from being spoken of. Remember, that was something she sort of believed that if we don't speak of it, it won't come true. And well, no better way to make sure she doesn't speak of it than to kill her. And then she's the only one that can speak of it. And if she keeps quiet, then hey, it's all there. But Clearly, that wasn't true. Clearly, she's never spoken of it, and it's coming true anyway. Redwine, before Loras shows up at Dragonstone to assault the castle, they were working on tunnel, tunneling below the walls of Dragonstone. But I wonder if that's going to tie into tunneling and mining at Dragonstone with regards to uh, Obsidian later, or something else. I don't know. And I'm just curious about, in general, what's below and Dragonstone tunnels and stuff like that. We've seen Stannis and Melisandre go into some of those places and uh, wander about inside the, the hot places below the castle. It's very, very interesting and very below the radar. I wonder if Danny will go down there when she uh, eventually takes the castle, assuming that's how it goes. Cersei mentions that Jamie was into dogs as a boy. When he was really young, all he cared about was, was knights and swords and dogs or something like that. And... Uh, we don't really see that dog thing anymore. So I wonder, it's just a small character note that I had forgotten about or never taken note of before. I wonder if that's, it's probably nothing, but Archmaester Rennie says, uh, quotes Cersei and says, they peck at you like a murder of crows. 
again, in Cersei's chapter, we have a reference to the title of the book. So, but in both Euron's and Cersei's chapters, I think we've perhaps seen it the most, said out loud. Of course, we've seen Feast for Crows out in the world, especially in like Brienne's chapters, where which we get to tour all the death and devastation. But it's more outright stated here. Bran Winslow says, can we give Moonboy his props, by the way, for coining the name High Sparrow? I had totally forgotten that. You know, I had let that slip my mind too. That is pretty cool. Moonboy doing his thing. That's a good nickname, the High Sparrow. I mean, he is, they are the Sparrows. Um, the High Sparrow, it does fit very nicely. We needed Moonboy in the TV show. <laughs> All right. Last but definitely not least, another really, really big chapter. Some people's favorite or most meaningful, impactful moment of the entire book. Here, Brienne Seven. Devils at the Crossroads, aka the one with no chance, no choice. Could I have called this one the one where Biter gets cheeky? Yes. Should I have? It's up for debate. I call them devils because they were loosed from the flames. It's not just because they're awful people. That part fits pretty well and needs little description. Of course, not literally loosed from the flames. Well, maybe literally loosed from the flames. Uh, yeah, they were trapped in a burning cart with bars on it they couldn't get away from, and Arya tossed them an axe. Fittingly, Roar dies here wielding an axe. Probably not the same axe, but <laughs> that would be interesting. And I wonder if Arya's ever going to learn about any of this, about what happened to Rorge and Biter and the fact that Brienne killed them. If Arya and Brienne ever hang out, maybe that story comes up. I don't know. That'd be kind of cool. Though not her last chapter, that's the next Brienne chapter, Brienne 8. This is probably the climax of her feast arc as really Brienne 8 sets up things going forward. This sort of ends her traipsing about the Riverlands looking for Sansa. She's going to be uh, interrupted by more pressing matters going forward. Although I'm sure she still wants to find Sansa and Arya, she'll have Stoneheart to deal with. It's the ultimate for so many themes this chapter is that have been so prevalent throughout not just her chapters, but particularly her chapters. Other chapters too, but knighthood, the protection of innocence, the protection of children, what to do in the face of evil, even when there's overwhelming odds, good versus evil. is uh, So often the series delves into the concept of, of gray characters. Sometimes it's not so gray. I mean, that's that's life. Sometimes, most of the time, things are gray, but occasionally things are pretty black and white. Life is like that, right? Nothing is, uh, nothing is always the same. We really got it all here, all these themes. And that's part of why it is so climactic of a chapter. Here's the first line of this dramatic chapter. They came upon the first corpse a mile from the crossroads. We quickly quickly learn that they're the men who raided salt pans, which is made very apparent by the salt stuffed in their mouths. It's a bit of a surprise, yet not a surprise, when we see who is among these raiders of salt pans. Brienne spied axes, arrows, several salmon, a pine tree, an oak leaf, beetles, bantams, a boar's head, half a dozen tridents. Broken men, she realized dregs from a dozen armies, the leavings of the lords. Since Maribald has taught her so much, and elder brother as well, she doesn't just look at these people as simple, awful criminals that deserve what they got. To be clear, she does think they deserve what they got. Even Maribald, who is a forgiving man, says, may the father judge them harshly. But 
We got Dustin or Serwin or Birch with the axes. The arrows are House Sarsfield. The pine tree is House Mullen, as in Hal Mullen. The oak tree is House Oakheart. The beetles, House Betley. Bantams, House Swift. The boar's head, House Craycall, most likely. There could be Vickery or even Hog. The tridents are either Manderley or Condon. These are a variety, like Brian says, a dozen armies. You got people who were on opposite sides before that have come together over being broken men. And you even have houses that are on the winning side. I mean, House Craycall, they're Lan- that's a Lannister allied house. They're winners. Same with House Betley. Same with House Swift. Same with House Oakheart. Same with House, House Sir- Sarsfield. Most of these are winning side houses. The corpses are hard to tell apart. It's, it's only this heraldry that helps. And here's the line about that. Quote. On the gallows tree, all men are brothers. Brienne had read that in a book, but she could not recall which one. Yeah. Reminds me a bit of the fake Bran Ricken or Davos and his, uh, you know, the chicanery with fake Davos up there at White Harbor. This inn has had many names. It's a theme that we've seen in a few places. We talked about it a lot with the Hound's Helmet and how the identity carries forward the place. Um, sometimes the name changes, but it's still the same place. In this case, the name changes, but it's still the same helmet and the same attitude, the same similar type of people wearing it, or at least everyone's associating all those things with that, with that character. We associated this with the concept of emperors that rule for a couple or kings that rule for a couple hundred years and say, well, how is that possible? Maybe it was a dynasty represented by one person, but actually they just all had a similar title, something like that. This is a microcosm of that theme sort of in reverse because it's the same location with a different name rather than a name that carries forward that is perhaps actually applied to different people. So Sir Hyle says they could call it the Crossbow Inn. Sir Hyle says they could call it the, the Gallows Inn. It's also been called the Crossroads Inn, which is what its name is now. But the River Inn was a name. The Old Inn was a name. The Clanking Dragon Inn was a name. We could also call it the Hangwoman's Inn, the Inn of Stoneheart, because these men hanged are by her, by the Brotherhood Without Banners. And they were lured to their deaths rather than directly confronted. Next chapter, we're going to get this line. Guess right don't mean so much as it used to, said the girl. Not since Milady come back from the wedding. Some of them swinging down by the river figured they was guests too. We figured different, said the hound. They wanted beds. We gave them trees. That's, of course, Lem wearing the hound's helmet. Hound number three, I suppose. First first. Sandor, then Rorge, now Lem. So we saw a similar tactic used by the Brotherhood at a different inn back in, I think, Jamie's second ever chapter. Not this book, second ever, meaning back in A Storm of Sword. Maybe it was the third one, but whatever. Really early in Jamie's arc, Jamie, Brienne, and Cleo stop at an inn and they sniff it out that this is some sort of setup for an ambush. They, if they take the route suggested by the people there, they're going to go into an ambush. This inn even had a, had a crossbow with a kid wielding a crossbow like this one does. Another key part of Brienne's arc, which often gets referenced, uh, is to show the devastation of war is witnessing the good that still exists in the world, to show that there are some seeds worth nurturing, that the world can, there is some hope, right? And this is perhaps the best example of that, as we finally discover Lady Stoneheart's Brotherhood does still have some interest in the protection of small folk. Yes, they've turned more towards vengeance and such, but they... That it isn't purely a murderous rampage. They are still taking care of kids, sort of, and no one else is, for the most part, not, not on any large scale that we know of. And uh, this is 
a lot of this is credited to Arya, right? Like Arya helped this setup with Gendry and, and Willow and getting them together and all that and, and leading, uh, leading to this place. This is, and this is also about Arya in another way. Just as Brienne learns that Arya had been with the Hound, so did the Brotherhood learn that Arya had been with the Hound. We hear that they have been hunting very intently for Roger's group for quite a while. Killing them makes sense for a number of reasons. Of course, you want to kill them. They're awful outlaws. They're the ones that did salt pans. But if they think he's really the hound, Rorge, which they might, then they also want to track down Arya. There's two reasons, at least two reasons, to find this guy. So the search for Rorge would be desperate, knowing that he himself is desperate. The bro- In other words, the Brotherhood, Stoneheart, they know that this Rorge guy is a broken man, that he's desperate. There's people hunting for him. They need to get him before Rorge flees Westeros or before, say, Randall Tarley catches him or someone else. Because if anyone else catches Rorge first, meaning the Hound, because they think it's the Hound, that someone else gets Arya too, or at least gets the information on Arya, uh, or at least gets access to the person that can tell them where Arya is. So they really, that's, that's part of why they're so desperate to catch Rorge. And, um, well, that's part of why the ha- uh, Lem, who was supposed to be hanging out nearby watching for this. That's part of why he was um, willing to leave because he heard news of Rorge being elsewhere. Well, again, when I say Rorge, I mean the Hound. So they're operating on bad intel. The real Hound had Arya, and even that part's out of date. The real Hound doesn't have Arya, nor, nor does he know where she went. It may be this, part, this is part of why there's so many young girls here. They're just looking for Arya all over the Riverlands. All the Brotherhood have a standard order to you know, bring any 10-year-old girl or anyone near that age you can find. Maybe they're just bringing all the young girls because there's also boys here as well. Heil says a cacophony of youngsters. So again, this is pretty strong proof that the Brotherhood are, are doing good deeds. Even though their ideals have been corrupted somewhat, they're not nearly all the way gone. Sir Heil again just shows that he's a pretty crappy dude. He rolls his eyes at the thought of sympathy for these orphans. Then after that display of compassion, he thinks, now that I've buttered you up in, by showing you how little I care about children, I'm going to ask you to marry me so we can have kids. <laughs> Smooth. He, Nina wrote almost half a page of things that Heil was crappy about here, joking about the killing people with the hanging when the former owner was murdered by hanging. Like He's joking about how this is the Gallows Inn when the owners of the inn now, they're family was hanged at this spot too. So that's not a very good joke. Laughing at misfortune of children in bad ways, mocking Brienne uh, about her gender. Just, just I don't need to go through them all because I think you guys agree. Heil isn't great. <laughs> he's, maybe he's, there's a lot of people worse than him, but I think he has, I think some people may have gone too far with redeeming him. I don't think he deserves much at all. Even if he isn't so terrible, he's not good. So two of the girls may not have been brought here by the Brotherhood at all. Rather, like I said, it belonged to their family. Willow and Jane Heddle are relatives of that woman hanged by Tywin. Remember, Masha Heddle was the one who ran the inn when Catelyn arrested Tyrion, and Tywin being Tywin blamed Masha for that. That seems fair. Here is a quote. I never dreamed that keeping an inn could be so deadly dangerous. It is being common board that is dangerous. When the great lords play their Game of Thrones. Ah, that seminal line again. What if you're looking for 
a line that defines the series. Well, you can't. No line defines this series, but this is a really good one. If you had to pick one, you could do a lot worse than that one. Maribald knows the history of this place as well. Not only does he know things like that, truths like that, here's what he knows about the end. Quote, Later, it passed to a crippled knight named Long John Heddle, who took up ironworking when he grew too old to fight. He forged a new sign for the yard, a three-headed dragon of black iron that he hung from a wooden post. The Heddle family also shows up in the Mystery Knight. Black Tom Heddle, who tried to help the rise of Damon II Blackfire as a key participant. That connects nicely to the rest of the story of the inn. When the smith's son was an old man, a bastard son of the fourth Aegon rose up in rebellion against his true-born brother and took for his sigil a black dragon. These lands belonged to Lord Derry then, and his lordship was fiercely loyal to the king. The sight of the black iron dragon made him wroth, so he cut down the post, hacked the sign into pieces, and cast them into the river. One of the dragon's heads washed up on the quiet isle many years later, though by that time it was red with rust. Mm -hmm. So black dragons are black fires, red dragons are Targaryens. So a metaphor for the black dragons fleeing across the sea after they lost the first rebellion is referenced here. The dragon being cast into the river. That's the same concept. You cast into the sea, fleeing across the sea, fleeing across the narrow sea, black dragon cast into the river. The armies of the Golden Company were almost literally washed up all over the Stormlands thanks to the storms, some of them far from their intended destinations. That has just happened, right? They've taken uh, Griffin's Roost, they've taken uh, Estermont and some other places. And well, so the Black Dragon has washed ashore again in covered in the same red rust that makes it look like a red dragon because Aegon is being sold to the realm as a red dragon when he's quite possibly a black dragon. So the Golden Company was originally founded by Bittersteel, a relative of the Black Dragons, the, the main organizer of Black Dragon activities, you could say. And now the Golden Company flies the flag of the Red Dragon, represented here by this red rusted dragon watching up ashore again as the sign watched up ashore on the Quiet Isle. The Golden Company's official motto is our word is as good as gold, but they're better known for the motto beneath the gold, the bitter steel. Here, beneath the rust is the black iron. <laughs> the rusted red dragon is not truly red, nor is young Griff a red dragon. Most likely a blackfire. Definitely not a Targaryen in my opinion. Probably a blackfire. The connection to Derry reminds us that we pointed out in Jamie's chapter that the Derrys may declare for the red dragons which they'll think is Aegon. But maybe we'll switch to Danny if they learn the truth. I mean, Danny is the slayer of lies after all, so we'll see. And just as this gives us reason to think of young Griff, Aegon VI, John Connington, and all those guys, a far more explicit reference to a bastard son of a king comes a few paragraphs later when Brienne thinks for just a moment that she's seen a ghost. Yeah, under the shadow of Rhaegar's son, who maybe isn't Rhaegar's son, probably isn't, Brienne realizes pretty quickly that Gendry is Robert's son. He says Robert almost ran him over with his horse. When we get the hint that, yeah, Robert wasn't, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Brienne was curious if Gendry ever noticed the resemblance in himself to Robert, but Gendry doesn't seem to have at all, because by the time Gendry saw his father in person, not only was he about to ride him, run over him with his horse, which doesn't exactly engender goodwill, but Robert's looks had changed a lot by that point. He had become overweight, his hair wasn't as black as it was, his eyes probably weren't as bright, things like that. Yeah. Years of 
Hard drinking will do that to you. Brienne seems to be realizing as she's noticing that he's Robert's son, he thinks she immediately thinks of Joffrey and Tom and Marcella being bastards and is like, wait a minute, you're the son of King Robert. So, oh, interrupt the lore. <laughs> interrupt the lore right at us. It's just as she's about to reveal this to him. Here come the brave companions showing up, seven of them. I don't know. We don't get a chance to come back to this. I mean, even when she's cut down from the rope at the end of uh, off page at the end of her next chapter in between the chapter with Jamie, Gendry's already left. He's gone back to the end. So will she get a chance to communicate this truth to anyone? I mean, she doesn't have to tell Gendry directly. Maybe she tells the rest of the Brotherhood. Maybe she already has because we haven't been back to a Brienne chapter since she was hanged. We only see through Jamie's chapter that she's gotten away from the hanging, but that she's trying to lure Jamie off the road. So obviously that wasn't a ghost of Renly, but there are devils at the crossroads, as I said. Kojimo told Sam, if the seven gods of Westeros denied their followers love, their demons. Victorian tell, here's tell of the knight Sir Harris Harlaw fighting seven members of House Grimm, but one at a time. And here we go. It's a similar type of concept. Seven, Brienne thought again, despairing. She had no chance against seven, she knew. No chance and no choice. Nina writes that Brienne stepping out into the rain to fight Rorge isn't just a supremely satisfying heroic moment, though it is. It's also emblematic of the most fundamental meaning of A Song of Ice and Fire. You don't do the right thing because it's easy or because you know you'll win or because you'll be rewarded for it. You do it because it's the right thing to do, right? Who was it that said everyone does their duty when there's no cost to it? Hmm? It's the same spirit as her ancestor, Dunk, who intervened himself to stop Arian's abuse of Tansel, although Arian was a prince and he was a nobody. It's the same spirit as Beric Dondarrion offering himself to Amory Lorch to try to save an innocent beekeeper and his wife, even though he might have figured Amory would kill them all anyway, as he did. It's the same spirit as Waymar Royce facing down the other and saying, dance with me, not because he thought realistically that he could win, but because the duty of the Night's Watch is to stop the others, and that's what he had sworn to do. No chance, no choice is the true hero's mantra. The hero is the one who can sacrifice everything for himself or herself to save innocent people against evil, even if they know it's not going to work in whatever form it appears. This scene cements, if it hadn't been obvious already, Brienne's heroism in a situation where she could have easily done nothing, where she could have run away. It doesn't even enter her mind. She's met these children before. She doesn't know them at all. She's probably never going to see them again, but they're children against killers, hardened killers. And that's, in her mind, there is really only one choice here. Now, Sandor hates knights and knighthood. Though he may have been reborn on the Quiet Isle, he got into a fight at the same spot because he wanted to drink and found himself facing his brother's men. Brienne loves knighthood, and this is what a knight does, right? So <laughs> compare the two. And Sandor had his fight because he, he's a, well, tra traumatized dude with little hope. He's a broken man. He wanted to get drunk. And then he ended up where he is now. Brienne is in the spot because she's being a brave hero. Let's unpack the conflict itself, right? Seven former brave companions ride up, which interrupts the lore. Gendry thinks it's the BWB returning because that's what was, was supposed to happen. And he's a member, so he knows what's going on. And this is, of course, one of their bases, so it makes sense to return there. But turns out it's not them. But it is men who say they're currently being chased by the Brotherhood. Bad luck to run from the Brotherhood and stop at one of the Brotherhood's bases then. But 
it's good luck for everyone else. Bad luck for them. So these are worse than broken men. They are desperate, but arguably they're even worse than broken men because Rorge and Biter and a lot of these guys, this is the kind of thing they were doing before they were desperate, right? They were awful guys before they turned outlaw, before they turned whatever they are now. And Brienne has dealt with these men before. She knows Rorge and Biter from being in their captivity at Harrenhal and captured outside of Harrenhal. Rorge was one of the men intent on raping her before Jamie jumped in with his talk about sapphires for her ransom, which is, of course, why Brienne whispers sapphires to him and when she kills him. And they, along with other bloody members, watched her fight in the bear pit. So this is this, at least the second time where they stand back to watch her fight. Last time, she didn't have... She had a tourney sword. This time, she has Valyrian steel. <laughs> As his rage takes over, which... Let's be honest, it doesn't take much to get Rorge in, enraged. He yells a bunch of derogatory terms at her, which is pretty fitting, even though it's you know wrong to do that sort of thing. It's fitting that he would do that. It's fitting that Brienne would defeat someone saying those kind of things. It's like a, a blow to the concept that women are lesser, and she defeats him despite all this, all his useless words. And she used... She uses the same tactics she used on Jamie, which she learned from Sir Goodwin, which she remembers during this fight. Uh, like it was with Jamie, when the Mothers came upon them, they watched. People watching Brienne fight. This is, so that's the third time, I guess, then. <laughs> and, and of course, there's the tourney of Rainbow Guards. So other people watching her fight then. Yeah. So there's I think several of in the show. <laughs> yeah. You remember in the show, her and Arya. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was a big, the, the whole team. <laughs> <laughs> that's true people watching Brienne fight is a thing they're like wow she is really good it's like you have to watch her to, to see it to be true to believe it to be true <laughs> once you see it you're like yep that's true she is good so then Biter shows up immediately when Roar dies again we point out how he looks like a hybrid of the deep ones <laughs> with his white belly and his shaved head and pointed teeth and eating someone doesn't exactly uh, push that notion away she hears other fighting on top of that Assumes Sir Hyle has joined in. Uh, Gendry probably has too, given that he's the one to kill Biter. And he, by doing so, reinforces this strange origin idea of having a foot-long, shiny tongue, you know? And uh, that turns out to be a sword, not a tongue. It's probably the same sword he was just finishing up in there. He forges it. And then, honestly, that's about as fast as a new sword ever gets used, right? <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Like straight hot off the presses, this sword is like, wow, I'm going to go use this immediately. <laughs> I wonder if that's meant to be a little bit symbolic. Like it's a little Azora Hayish, right? He's like, I pull it from the flames, dip it in the water, then dip it in Biter's flesh. <laughs> Hopefully there's none of Biter's soul in that sword. <laughs> Yikes. A lot we can take from this. The idea that there are some monsters, some evils that cannot be defeated, right? Of course, Biter was defeated, but the thing... the, the cultural significance of Biter being a thing. The, the, the reasons Biter exists are still there. The world can create more Biters the way it is right now. Brienne was right, though. Um, that's, that's a thing that Joe think is, thinks is at work here, that George is saying. No chance, she said. Um, but you can't do it alone. It's, it's, again, George often reinforces this point that uh, heroes cannot fight alone. They need help. The heroes must be supported. They can be the leaders, they can be the, the symbols, they can be the centerpiece, but they can't do it alone. And Gendry, luckily, she, she wasn't entirely alone. Gendry uh, saves her. 
Biter, of course, does severe injury to her, breaking her arm and chewing on her face, a sentence I don't enjoy saying. Uh, the damage to her cheek serves to make her and the hound even more alike, right? Uh, as if they didn't have enough in common already, you know, messed up cheek, trauma, acting more like a knight than real knights, searching for Arya and Sandor or Sansa, time on the quiet aisle, confessing to elder brother, being extremely large. Uh, there's a lot of parallels between these two. Well, another thing, though, is uh, Book Brienne looks even less like Gwendolyn Christie than, than she ever did. <laughs> but hey, that's not a big deal. Willow. Let's let's shout out Willow real quick. You know, even younger than Arya, but uh, also forced to grow up really beyond her uh, age and has done so. A very much a leader amongst these children. Uh, also f- willing to face down these outlaws with a crossbow that Joe points out might be heavier than she is, but she does it. Yeah, so a little bit like Brienne too. Little Brienne, little Arya. Pretty cool. Glad to see she survives. Hopefully, uh, hopefully we see her again in, in good shape. Uh, she's also, she overrules Gendry. Gendry's like, no, I'm wary. These visitors get them out of here. But Willow's smarter about it. She says, look, it's a risk worth taking. They have food. <laughs> I mean, food. And the, the, she points out that there's young mouths to feed. And some of these young mouths are holding crossbows. I mean, it's so sad, right? But they got to eat. And Brienne also, uh, when at the beginning of the chapter, she's thinking about what to do. now. She's like, where do I go? I have, she's got no idea where to look for Santa and Arya, and she considers going south. She even considers taking all the brothers' advice and going back home, but she just can't do it. She has to continue with her quest. It's too important to her. It matters to her more than seeing her father. Even though that's a, a major pull, this is a bigger pull. Uh, as for Gendry, uh, his mood is hardly surprising. His bitterness isn't surprising. He's probably He probably doesn't love guarding the kids. Um, he doesn't seem to embrace that, although he certainly does his job. He does probably like being uh, having his forge. That's probably something good for him. It might be his like uh, happy place, at least his place where he's less upset. Uh, it's just maybe, maybe similar to Arya walking around town with her cart. It's therapeutic a bit. Gendry maybe has that same bit of self-therapy by hammering away on a sword. He might be upset about the loss of Arya still. We don't know how well he gets on with Lady Stoneheart. I mean, he seemed to respect Beric but he's still committed to R'hllor, at least. Um, I mean, he made a commitment. And uh, I really wonder about his future. We, we have some hope that he'll come out of all this well. But uh, the, the difference between books and show is, is pretty big uh, with this plot. It, it, not just in general, but this plot specifically. I wonder about Gendry. But hopefully we get more of him in The Winds of Winter. And it's happy. Or at least not bad. <laughs> A little bit of symbolism with the hanged men as well that, uh, that Nina points out that I didn't catch. The, the limb of a dead tree whose blackened trunk still bore the scars of the lightning that had killed it. That is a reference to Beric Dondarrion's sigil, which is a lightning bolt because Beric was the one leading these men until recently. Now that Stoneheart has taken over, uh, you have the hanged men, which is really kind of her sigil of sorts. It's not really her sigil, but that is her sort of adopted concept. They call her the hangwoman, you know, all that. So it fits pretty pretty darn well. It's got both of them here. <laughs> Beric has been struck down for good, but the mission of the Brotherhood is a little more violent now. Well, interestingly, uh, Maribal got one thing probably wrong. He said that the Jairus and Alisand slept at the end of the crossroad during their journeys, though the official royal progress indicates that Alisand was sick and didn't actually come. Or not sick, sorry, pregnant. 
not fit to travel at that point. So it was probably just to Harris, but whatever. Okay. I wanted to mention um, this little discussion we had in the chat. Yeah. Where you were talking about the rusted red dragon. It made me think about just how, you know, they all have dragon blood, especially we were talking about how even more in this episode about how everyone has dragon blood, I think. Yeah. In terms of uh, talking about Rael and all that. But... They all have dragon blood. And so I was just saying, I would love to see young Griff actually outed as a Blackfire and for Danny to still want him as her family. Oh, yeah. She has so little family. And then so Brandon Winslow brought up like a quote. He's like, he's still blood of my blood, which I love that idea. And then Dornish Dame also chimed in saying him being accepted would echo Aegon III making Gaiman Palehair his friend. Plus, um, it would be great if Aegon is Sarah and Illyrio's son relationship. Uh, since Sarah worked in a pillow house and Game and Pale Hair lived, was grew up, you know, in a brothel. That's a great catch. I I considered the Aegon Three Game and Pale Hair bit, but never the the background of the, of the brothel connection there. That's really neat. But uh, my I, I like that a lot. I could see that happening. I think that um, the Game and Pale Hair thing is going to get played out by Tommen. Yeah, I think Tommen will be Game and Pale Hair, who has he has pale hair even, and that he's the whole thing with. Game and pale hair was that it wasn't his fault that other people foisted him as a king when he was actually a bastard. And that, that's going to be for hopefully Tommen's fate because Tommen, hopefully Tommen isn't killed when none of this is his fault. Of course, Game and pale hair ends up poisoned because he's a food taster and mm-hmm. that could happen with Tommen as well. But in any case, I, either way, I agree that this could still happen, even if it doesn't happen in the way Game and pale hair does. Daenerys not killing Aegon makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways it makes sense for them to fight and for things to get very bloody. Like, you you can say there's clues for a lot of it, but they could have a terrible Dance of the Dragons type fight and then still come to terms. Yeah, and I think that maybe it's more likely that Cersei takes King's Landing back um, after the fall of Aegon, maybe because he's outed as not really Rhaegar's son or something which would, uh, if he's no longer in power, there's less. There would be less reason for conflict between Danny and him if he's already not on the throne. Yeah, yeah, that's Maybe. a good point. So, uh, yeah, so that would perhaps make an alliance between them more possible. Yeah, I, um, I, you know, Danny's still alone. She wants a family. Yeah, she does. She does, and, and you know, and she has a couple of people out there. So that's a good point. Yeah, I could see that. It's a really good idea. Tree Girl points out that this is the second time Gendry saw Rorge threaten to rape a very young girl because she he was there when. Rorge threatened to rape Arya too. So he's really, Gendry's really getting an education in how awful people are. Are you real? Rorge is a bad lesson. Apparently, Rorge is all talk, no rape, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. No, no, he did. He raped a girl at Salt Pans at the very yeah, least. Yeah, well, I just mean about Willow and Arya. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and Brienne also thinks of what hopefully isn't foreshadowing. She looks at the end and says, and thinks about all the awful things that have happened over the years to the people there and says, at least no one has burned it down. Well, hopefully it stays that way. <laughs> but as we talked about with the Quiet Isle and the possibility of Euron getting a dragon and going all Aemond One-Eye on the Riverlands, which is, if you forget, is what Aemond One-Eye did was just fly around the Riverlands torching things. We brought that up as a possibility for Riverrun. We brought it up as a possibility for the Quiet Isle. And now here it is, a possibility for the end at the Crossroads. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but I can't ignore the possible foreshadowing here. But maybe it's just another idle thought of, yeah, hopefully at least no one has burned it down. 
Last week, we covered 171 minutes, 21 seconds. This week, it's almost identical. 169.08, only about two minutes difference. So far, we've covered 1,663 minutes of the 2,030 minutes. We are 81.9% of the way through. We have two parts left, eight more chapters. As always, you could check the video length, compare it to the podcast length, see how much gets edited out. It's usually at least five minutes, sometimes as much as 25 minutes, usually somewhere in between. Check out our website. I've been mentioning this off and on recently. Shea has done some great work over there. What I mean is she added all of the Valerie Reedus episodes uh, in a sortable feature function. You can grab the book and the chapter you want specifically and go right to it. And there's links to both podcast and YouTube version. So, Next time, we have Jamie Six, my parlay with Blackfish, a.k.a. the one where the Brotherhood infiltrates River Run. Cersei Nine, the gang throws a moon tea party, a.k.a. Orton, who's a hand? <laughs> the Princess in the Tower, the one with vengeance, justice, fire, and blood, a.k.a. the Tower of Joyless. And finally, Elaine Two. Sweet sleep for Sweet Robin, a.k.a. the gang meets Randa Royce. Oh, yeah. You know, for once, I can't think of any of our scripted episodes that I mentioned in this one, but I probably did. We definitely talked about Summer Hall. That always comes up. <laughs> yeah, I think, yes, Summer Hall, Dreams and Dreamers is yeah, a little we'll bit action, relevant. Um, um, and the Mercy chapter. Oh, the Mercy chapter. Yes, good call. And of course, our, fire, our Faceless Man Iron Bank coverage is is probably relevant still as well as um, well maybe probably some of the Euron stuff anyway thanks to all of y'all who came and watched live thanks to those of you who watched afterwards or listened afterwards we certainly do appreciate your uh, fandom and being part of our community thanks to Ashea the Kraken for managing so many things at once with all those various arms Thanks to Joe Buckley and Nina Friel for their invaluable contributions to this and every episode in Valerie Redis. Thanks to our awesome History of Westeros mods over there in our Facebook group for posting every chapter with artwork and discussion points. Thanks as well to our other discussion groups, Flick and all y'all who provide such great takes over on Discord as well. Thanks to Claredox. Michael Klarfeld's maps are right behind me as always. He did our video intro as well. His reach map is really awesome. It's about to come out. Shay and I were helping him proof it for mistakes. It comes out in six days, August 8th, 2020. It is beautiful. It is really beautiful. And it has, as always, his maps have these family trees and, and, and uh, scenes of historical significance. Yeah. And there are a lot, of, as it's not uncommon, but the Reach families are a bit bigger. Probably, I think there's more characters on this one than there are. Yeah, there would, be, I, there are, especially because he did all the children of Garth Greenhand. So that of means, which I am one. Yeah, so that means there's a lot of recognizable fandom faces because Michael mostly takes uh, people from our community to use as models for yeah. these maps. So yes. again, if you want to be a model for one of the maps, because there's more to come. Join our Facebook group and uh, you can ask yeah. around and we'll get yeah, you Yeah, it's a, you can join our Facebook group and we'll point you in the right direction. Michael has a, a group of his own called Model Earth where yeah. you can submit pictures and whatnot. Absolutely. Thanks as well to Kevin McLeod for the 
Valar Reed's music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for our regular History of Westeros music intro and outro. Thanks to our engineer for managing our sound quality offline. Thanks to the many patrons who support the show. You guys have been stalwart. Here we are in between show with the book. Who knows how far away and you guys are humming along right with us and we love it. This is such a great community. We're so lucky to be a part of it and to be doing this, to be making episodes every week. And yep, I will never be able to express my full gratitude for that, but I'll try. (laughs) Go check out Here Be Dragons, our good friends over there. Steven Stark leading the way are having another good discussion. Today it's just about, started. And today it's about the Clone Wars season two. Very cool. Well, we'll have to stay away from that because we are just finished season one. <laughs> did we start season two yet? Yeah. We did. Okay, so we're just into season two. Either way, have fun with that. If you're into Clone Wars, they always have good discussions. Head on over. If not, well, we'll see you all next week for more Valar Reeves.